Podcast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. This week, we have two co-hosts for the price of one. And the price of one is zero. We don't charge for the show. Not yet, anyway. Some people have been suggesting that, by the way. That instead of actually giving away a free show with commercials, because that's how you pay the bills, we charge for the show. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of think that I wouldn't ask anybody to pay for a radio show. Because, you know, everybody has only so much money to spend. Look... We have to have commercials. If you don't like the commercials, you do what you do on your DVRs, on your TV sets. You fast forward. The co-hosts are Chris O'Brien and Nicholas Redfern, who's rejoining us after a short absence. And he'll tell us what he's been up to in a few moments. He has a book out, by the way, called The NASA Conspiracies. And boy, there's a list of stuff here. I don't know if we're going to get to all of it. We may have to make this a double show. But Nick, before we go on to anything else, one of the things that... I'd like to talk about is the fact that, you know, because you haven't been here a while and every time we have a guest on, a co-host, we kind of like to ask, hey, what have you been up to lately? And maybe you could possibly tell us how you spent your summer vacation. What have you been doing the last few weeks since we last heard from you? Uh, well, as far as my summer vacation is concerned, as you well know, Gene, we, we spoke off air, and no, I cannot discuss that in this show at all. But uh, hopefully if we get more of an enter- well, not a more entertaining, but a more diverse show at some point, which covers other realms and other areas, then I'll perhaps be able to uh, astonish the, re- the uh, listeners with a few uh, breakthroughs in that area, shall we say. <laughs> I will leave it at that for now <laughs> on, on my summer vacation. But, um, I mean, that aside, I do a lot of work um, outside of the whole paranormal realm. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that. I do a lot of ghost writing for authors on all sorts of subjects um, you know, that have no, no bearing on the paranormal. It's just sort of one of the side projects I have. You know, when you're a, a freelance writer and, you know, write books, a lot of people think, you know, you write a couple of books and you're driving around in a, Corvette or something and, you know, living in <laughs> Beverly Hills or whatever. And the reality isn't quite like that. The reality uh, is no. I enjoy what I do, but it's like, you know, every day is like a, a struggle, you know. I mean, I'm not complaining because I actually enjoy that, the lifestyle of having to pitch articles and sell ideas. And, you know, every day is a bit different. But it's unless you're sort of J.K. Rowling or Stephen King, you know, it's freelance writing. is a hazardous job. Um, and so, you know, I'm always sort of pitching for new ideas and anything that's writing related. And um, I also do a lot of writing for um, medical um, attorney-based companies, you know, where you uh, people have have had medical problems through prescription drugs. Um, you know, I do a lot of writing in that field. And also just wrapped up a manuscript on The Men in Black, which will be published um, next about next May. Now, I wrote a book about four years ago called On the Trail of the Saucer Spies, which was how government agencies secretly watch people in the UFO field. But this, and, and that was more from the government angle, but this new book will be sort of addressing more the whole Keel, Barker, Bender aspect of, of the men in black. In other words, you know, the, the paranormal, supernatural aspects and overtones that go along with the whole MIB thing rather than just, you know, government, quote, secret agents or whatever. So that's 
that's what's been keeping me busy uh, the last few months. Now, I'm going to ask you one thing as a hint, and you can say, you know what, wait for the book. But in doing this sort of thing, do you think that you found any providence for all this men in black stuff, that there's really something to it? Oh, yeah, there's, there's no doubt in my, my mind that, that, that there is. You know, I'm absolutely convinced of that. Um, you know, I mean, and I've been convinced for, for a long time. That's one of the reasons I wanted to write this particular book. Um, you know, it's, a lot of people either take the view that there's nothing to the Men in Black stories, that it's all hoaxing or Walter Mitty-type UFO research, you know, overstepping the mark and banging on someone's door and saying, I read your article in a or your story in a newspaper, and please give me all the details. And, you know, every UFO group wants the scoops, so they may have said occasionally, don't tell, you know, this group or that group, and then people think they've been visited by the men in black. Um, or it's, you know, hoaxing, etc., etc. or it's all government people. But the more I've dug into it, the more I've found that there seems to be a very sinister aspect to a lot of MIB stories that go beyond, far beyond... Um, you know, the whole idea of, of government personnel and which touch upon everything from like tolpers, tricksters, paranormal aspects, weird synchronicities, you know, with these with these strange characters just kind of materializing out of nowhere and almost seem almost seem like temporary entities is the best way I can describe them. You know, it sounds to me that. like this is the entire so called John Keel syndrome. Well yeah, I mean I do, you know Keel is one is a person like Valet who I've had a great deal of respect for in their in their writings and conclusions. And I think I think the simplistic approach that MIB reports are hoaxes or government agents is so far away from the reality of the situation to be almost laughable that I think we're dealing with a phenomenon that's very difficult to comprehend. But that it, it, to me, it's almost as if the the angle of warning the witnesses not to talk about UFO encounters is secondary. I think the, the primary focus is instilling fear in the person. And I think one of the things I well one of the things I talk about in the book is the idea of these being sort of predatory paranormal entities that may feed on emotion and fear. May, so basically it's more. like to run is an invitation to being chased. That's what John Keel said. So if you fear something yeah. you can cause it to come your way yes and also i think these entities as i point out in the book you know but i think fear is a key component of their existence almost like tolpers that feed on high states of emotion i think you know that the the threat and the warning is secondary to the emotional state that the threat creates in the person i think that's that's why we even get reports of mib turning up in truly innocuous, you know, UFO cases of no real uh, merit because it's not the case that's important. What's important is instilling this shock factor in the witness that I think these MIB somehow almost like prey upon. And I mean, I know that's a controversial theory, but I think I've been able to put together a lot of evidence suggesting that, you know, these entities uh, could be the same ones that 500 years ago were responsible for tales of like predatory vampires and things like that. It's all to do with entities that seem to be somehow feeding upon on the human psyche, if you like. Well, I'll tell you what, that is not going to be the topic of this week's discussion. How about that, yeah. ladies and gentlemen? But you know what? That tantalizes us because we kind of think, you know what? When that book is out, you're going to be back, and we're going to explore that in far more detail. 
And maybe at that time we'll bring on my friend Alan Greenfield or perhaps Jim Mosley to also talk about their understanding of the men in black lore. So anyway, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? We're not going to talk about the men in black any further this time. We're going to keep you curious because, you know, Nick is still doing the final work in the book. He submitted the manuscript, goes through the editorial process. Maybe the men in black will visit him. Yeah, well, if right. I do, just I'm just what he wants, well, right? That'll be a good accompaniment to the book. So. Well, it'll certainly make things a lot more interesting. Yeah, exactly. It'll be wild, wicked, and woolly. But before we get too wild, wicked, and woolly... Let me tell you, neighbors, that on this particular episode, Nick Redfern is going to be talking about his new book, which is called The NASA Conspiracies. Now, NASA conspiracies cover everything from the theory, and as a matter of fact, it was very popular in the PowerCast forums, whether the moon landing was staged by NASA for one reason or another that never really happened, to the faces on Mars, to all sorts of possibilities real or imagined. The conspiracies could be a dime a dozen. They could be credible. We're going to have to figure out exactly what's going on. So we have two co-hosts. We have Chris O'Brien and we have Nick Redfern, author of the NASA Conspiracies. I'm Gene Steinberg. And now we're going to ask both of these gentlemen to try to do a chorus. You're in (laughs) the (laughs) Paracast. Jacques Vallée, Bud Hopkins, Brad Steiger, Nick Redfern, Lauren Coleman. You'll find classic and new books by these and many other authors at Anomalous Books, the number one publisher of 14 books on the planet. They specialize in books on UFOs and aliens, Bigfoot and cryptozoology, parapsychology and the paranormal, as well as alternative history, all of which makes Anomalous Books simply phenomenal. Check out their catalog at AnomalousBooks.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-I-S-T Books.com. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. Most importantly, we care about you. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Namecheap or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash Namecheap. See you online. Have you ever felt like the United States government knows way too much about your financial affairs? I continue to hear stories about property seizures, frozen bank accounts, confiscation of stocks and bonds. It makes me wonder if the U.S. citizen will ever again have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Unfortunately, with the Drug and Money Laundering Act, the IRS Revenue Ruling 6045 of 1984, and the Trading with the Enemy Act and Franklin D. Roosevelt's Executive Order of 1933, some precious metal holdings are subject to government intervention. For this reason, Midas Resources has prepared a report explaining the boundaries of trading precious metals privately. Whether if you have any intention of trading with Midas Resources or not, I have instructed my representatives to give this report out free. Call for your free copy at 1-800-686-2237. When investing, always proceed with caution. Again, call 1-800-686-2237. Exercise your legal right to trade metals privately. 1-800-686-2237. 
Becoming a modern smoker is now easier and more cost-effective, thanks to LeSig. Traditional smokers the world over love LeSig. E-cigarettes with a look, feel, and taste of real cigarettes, but without the nasty smoke, ashes, or stains. LeSig is powered by revolutionary microelectronic technology. A small, rechargeable battery and unique replaceable cartridge provide all the satisfaction and benefits of smoking without the smoke and all the hazards. See the large variety of LeSig e-cigarette supplies and accessories at LeSig.com. That's L-E-C-I-G.com. LeSig is competitively priced, comes with the best customer service, a 30-day warranty, and satisfaction guaranteed. What a great gift idea. For a 10% discount, mention GCN when you call 870-518-4307. That's 870-518-4307. Ask for fast, free, same-day shipping. Order online at LeSig.com and use promo code GCN at checkout. That's L-E-C-I-G.com. LeSig for today's modern smoker. Question, what would you rather drink? Acidic water, which burns holes in your body and causes loss of bone mass? Or alkaline water, which promotes high energy and vibrant health? (laughs) The answer is clear. And if you're drinking acidic water, you're helping cancer cells and bacteria to grow out of control. AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops combine a unique formula of the most alkaline minerals. Using Plasma pH Drops is the best way to alkalize your water and help you get rid of acid and regain your health and energy. Simply put 10 drops in the water you drink to Raise the pH to a healthy alkaline level. Most experts agree that the water you drink should be at a pH level of 8 or higher. Disease organisms like bacteria, viruses, or cancer cannot survive in an alkaline high pH environment. Order your bottle of AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops now by going directly to AlkaVision.com. That's A-L-K-A-Vision.com. Or by calling 269-409-1776. Again, 269-409-1776. America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Get in on all the action at forum.theparacast.com. Nick Redfern, our co-host and our guest, author of the NASA Conspiracies, I'm Gene Steinberg. Chris O'Brien is our co-host. You're in the Paracast. You know, it's not the most important conspiracy, maybe, but I'll bring it up. You see, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, our friendly neighborhood members of the Paracast forums opted to talk about the possibility that there was no moon landing. So the question I'm going to ask Nick Redfern, before we even get to that, I'll create a cliffhanger. Nick, the NASA conspiracies, why did you come to write this book? Did you find that some of these conspiracies are really true? Yeah, I mean, the the whole thrust of the book is an examination of the various theories or conspiracy theories surrounding NASA and everything from UFOs, space on Mars, etc. It's not an upholding of all the theories. It's my sort of examination and conclusions based around an evaluation of the of the available evidence. And the reason as to how and why I wrote the book was because, you know, a lot of books have been written on single subjects like the face on Mars, like the moon landings, etc., etc., or astronaut sightings of UFOs. But what I felt hadn't been done was was kind of like an unbiased approach because 
you know, most of the books written on did we go to the moon were written from the perspective of, well, no, we didn't. Most of the books written on the face on Mars were written from the perspective of it's definitely, you know, a sculpted face that dates back into the you know, ancient past. So what I decided to do with this book was to try and present logical arguments in chapter by chapter format that would address the the salient points, if you like, so the various conspiracies and then be able to offer the reader, you know, some sort of meaningful conclusion as to what I felt was going on and, and how and why. And of course, one of the most important things is that a lot of people don't realize there are so many different conspiracy theories relative to NASA. You know, we're not just stuck on the face and Mars and did we go to the moon or not? You know, there's, there's dozens of, of weird stories, which, you know, from book writing perspective is a good thing. Okay, so we realize that. What about the rumors of the moon landings being faked? Where did that come from? Well, you know, I mean, a lot of it came in the early 1970s from a man named Bill Casing, who actually um, you know, worked closely with NASA and doing contract work, etc. Now, Casing was was one of the the prime movers, I guess, that got the whole movement going, you know, the, the notion that the moon landings were faked, primarily due to the fact that NASA, according to Casing, didn't, just simply did not have the expertise and the technology to safely send people to the moon, land them, and get them back in one piece, you know, with all the hazards that would go along with this. Everything from, you know, outer space radiation, calibrating the landing and takeoff, et cetera, and ensuring they got back, you know, at the, as I said, in one piece. Of course, I think, as I point out, you know, I think one of the issues, one of the most important issues, but it's also one that a lot of people forget, is that there are, you know, there's, there's very good reason to be jaded and suspicious of anything we're told by governments on any issue because we're so used today to being kind of lied to in sort of almost like a matrix style world you know where we don't know what to believe or what's going on you only have to look at things like iran contra weapons of mass destruction you know war on terror etc etc to realize that there are so many odd facets to these conspiracies or you know realities however you want to term them that it's understandable that people would have jaded views on on anything that comes out of the mouth of officialdom shall we say and i think that's an important factor i think also you know legitimate questions have been raised about certain aspects of the moon landing the big question is whether or not these legitimate questions have legitimate answers or not now you know of course one of the one of the most famous and controversial things that's been brought up about the moon landing is that on one particular mission where you see the astronauts planting the flag, it seems to wave. Uh, now, of course, in a vacuum, you, you, know, you simply cannot have a waving flag. Um, and a number of books have addressed this issue and you know, loudly proclaimed that, well, you know, the flag moves when the astronaut plants it. And, well, yes, it does. But what a lot of people don't point out is that it only waves when the astronauts are handling it. The, the flag in the relevant footage is actually on screen for, I think it's like 28 minutes or 31, I forget now. But regardless, it's pretty much half an hour. Basically, because the reason it's waving is because it's physical movement on the part of the astronauts to make it move. It's not because of some unusual force or because it no. was done in an area where there was a wind. And you kind of think, too, if NASA was that stupid 
In the first place, they deserve to be caught, but wouldn't they allow for that if they were staging this? Well, yeah, I mean, you can look at it two ways. Some people say that they weren't that stupid, that, that there were whistleblowers who were trying to get the truth of the matter out. Now, that's not implausible, but I would be far more impressed by this flag-waving story if at any point after the astronauts actually let the flag go after it's planted, it moved even once. And unfortunately for those who say this issue is relevant... It doesn't move. You know, people don't have to take my word for it. The ironic thing is that many of the people who uphold this theory in lectures and conferences only show it moving when the astronauts plant the flag. They, they fail every time to show the rest of the footage where it's just not moving. And to me, that's an uncritical, biased approach. You know, if you're going to make this claim about the flag having relevance you should point out that it doesn't move at any other occasion. Okay, that particular argument doesn't sustain itself. Any other arguments being voiced by the adherents of the moon landing is fake theory? Yeah, I mean, another one, of course, is this issue of why there are no stars in the sky on many of the, you know, the photographs. And, of course, the, the conspiracy theorists would argue that NASA simply didn't have the capability to accurately determine where all the stars and the planets would be you know, in, in the right place at the right time. And in a worst-case scenario, somebody might realize that they're actually in the wrong place. And so they did the best thing they could do, and that was to, you know, obliterate the stars from the sky. If, you know, if it was filmed on Earth somewhere, and then people realize, well, hang on a minute, you know, we're seeing stars from the perspective of where they would be in the Earth's night sky. Now, again, you know, NASA has put forward what I believe to be valid arguments. You know, it's kind of like... You're looking up in the sky in the day. Occasionally, you'll see the moon. Very occasionally, you might see Venus. That does happen occasionally, but you will not see stars. And, and NASA's view is that, you know, the fact that the sun, you know, is, is beaming on the moon's surface and, you know, the, the lack of an atmosphere um, and also the cameras that were being used simply whited out the stars. You know, it was just too bright to, to actually pick up imagery. Now, of course, then the conspiracy theorists roll their eyes and say, no, this, you know, that's, that's just not possible. We should be seeing stars. So, in other words, this aspect of the story is an intriguing one, but it's very much like an us versus them type thing where, you know, nobody is satisfied with the other party's answer. But those are two of the main ones. Got a comment or a question? Send it to news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. Tell you what, Nick, we're going to break for a second. We have Nicholas Redfern. The book is The NASA Conspiracies. Our co-host is Chris O'Brien. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in... The Paracast. <laughs> Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! Of the Rockaways. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R O C K O I D S. 
Attack, Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Pure water. What could be better than the gift of health for your loved ones? And who better to help you give the gift this holiday season than BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com? If those on your gift list are drinking or bathing in unfiltered city or well water, chances are that water is contaminated with rust, bacteria, chlorine, and fluoride. For just pennies a day, Berkey Water Filters remove dangerous contaminants from both well and city water, is powerful enough to purify stagnant pond water, and is great for camping and emergencies. Right now, GCN listeners get 5% off off all ceramic filter systems and free shipping on orders over $50. Purchase any filter system from BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com to get your choice of Berkey Sport bottles, a KDF shower filter, a set of fluoride filters, or the new Sight Glass Spigot absolutely free. Visit BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com or call 877-99-BERKEY today. That's 1-877-99-BERKEY. Give the gift of health at BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com today. Hi, I'm Mark Craighead, founder of Crossbreed Holsters. I designed our top-selling holster, the Super Tuck Deluxe, to solve the problems of being poked, pinched, and gouged while carrying concealed. The Super Tuck Deluxe is the most comfortable, most concealable holster on the market today. We offer a two-week free trial and a lifetime warranty. Visit us at CrossbreedHolsters.com. Don't forget... CrossbreedHolsters.com. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. Have you ever wondered why banks, stockbrokers, investment advisors won't talk about gold IRAs? They've been available since 1986, yet the financial industry won't recognize the value of gold for your retirement. Gold has outperformed paper investments, yet no word about IRAs. If you would like to have gold for your retirement, call 800-686-2237. Don't get left behind by rising inflation and low returns. Call 800-686-2237. Secure your future and call 1-800-686-2237. This is Alex Jones with five good reasons you should consider buying a solar power generator. Number one, new climate legislation could easily double or triple your electric bill. Number two, our new energy czar wants to control how much power your electric company allows you to have. It's true. Total government control of electricity in the name of smart grid technology is coming. Number three, in some areas of the country, the power grid is dangerously overloaded. And now new socialist legislation is only compounding the problem. Number four, dangerous weather is always a threat to local grids. Every year, thousands of families lose their power from weather-related outages. Number five, a solar power generator provides powerful backup insurance and peace of mind. Folks, I really believe in the solar power generators offered by Solutions from Science, one of my oldest sponsors. You can get more information at www.mysolarbackup.com. That's mysolarbackup.com. Remember, the government doesn't own the sun, so go to mysolarbackup.com or call 1-877-327-0365. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. This is Jerome Clark, author of UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're listening to the Paracast. Between breaks, ladies and gentlemen, Nick Redfern and Chris O'Brien are genial co-hosts or not so genial. They're fighting each other tooth and nail to see who will say the words the Paracast in the most effective fashion. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast, where anything can happen and usually does. The book on the table is The NASA Conspiracies, Nick's new book, 
And Chris, why don't you pick up on this? Let's pursue the discussion. I guess we're kind of wrapping up the moon landing is fake thing, so let's go on. Yeah, one of the things that uh, I think you bring up very effectively, Nick, in in, in the chapter on the uh, question of the validity of any arguments that argue against the moon landing is that thousands of people would have to be brought into some sort of loop on that, and it would be very, very difficult to hold something so immense like that secret. And obviously, you know, no one has ever come forward really and as a whistleblower and spilled the beans on any sort of uh, conspiratorial theory like that. So, would you like to address that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that is one of the important points, and it says a lot about human nature. I mean, for example, there were more than... If you look at NASA and the outside contractors that were involved in, you know, building everything from, like, life support systems, the computers, etc., there were actually more than 400,000 people worked on the entire Apollo program from its inception when Kennedy made his speech in 62 about going to the moon to when the, the Apollo missions finished in 72. Now, 400,000 people, you know, if only 1% of that 400,000 were clued in on what really happened, that's still 4,000 people. I mean, look, for example, at how quickly things like Watergate dissolved, uh, Iran-Contra, even the whole weapons and mass destruction fiasco, you know, and we're talking about they just fell apart in weeks or months. You know, the idea that uh, a significant percentage or even a small percentage of 400,000 people could uphold a conspiracy like this for more than 40 years, in my view, is beyond feasible. Don't get me wrong, I think there's definitely been some interesting books written suggesting we didn't go to the moon, and I I would actually urge people to read them to get both viewpoints. But what I do think is that we would, beyond having just questionable photographs and theories about the stars in the sky and books written, we would have had at least a few credible people come forward on the record and say, hey, you know, I was one of the people who set up the lights out in the desert when we filmed this at Area 51 or whatever, you know, and I was one, or I was one of the people who flew in by helicopter the lunar module and, you know, we landed it down on the ground and, you know, etc., etc. But we don't have a single person. You know, that's why even with things like the Kennedy assassination, which provokes a lot of controversy... We at least have people coming forward saying, I was the second or the third gunman. We don't even have anybody in the, the whole NASA field of the, you know, the moon landing saying, I was the second or third cameraman. You know, we, we just don't have anything like that. And I think that's one of the things that makes this theory, I won't say untenable, but I would say highly unlikely. Now, doesn't that also auger the same conclusion to the theory that the government knows about UFOs and has the stuff on ice somewhere because somebody somewhere has to spill the beans. Or am well, I wrong? No, I mean, well, well I, I, he's got a really good uh, source in the book, uh, the next New York City policeman that uh, came forward uh, and talked to Nick. Uh, maybe you should address that, Nick. That's, that's one of the best, uh, most fascinating parts of the book, I think. Yeah, this is a very weird story of a guy who I spoke to named John, who was originally in the um, New York Police Department, and he began working sort of in tandem, not for, but in tandem with the FBI on a, like a spy ring that was supposedly operating in New York, and the police department were working with the FBI. And John, you know, very, very elderly guy. Um, this was sort of in the late 50s, early 60s. And um, he was sort of... In, instrumental in, in part of this particular program and when he retired from the police force he was actually offered a job with Wackenhut who were actually responsible for the security at Area 51 for quite a long time 
and it was it was basically a case of you know we were very impressed with the work you did when you were within the police force on this spying operation with the FBI. Would you be interested now that you're retired, you know, in, in doing some sort of contract work or you know off the record work even with Wackenhuts, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And you know he he was told that it would give him a, a good, I guess, outlet in the world of private security, etc., which is a very lucrative field, certainly. And he was offered a job working at a secure installation in Nevada, which, with hindsight, we would call today Area 51. He stressed to me back in around 1969, 1970, when this kicked off, the term Area 51 was never mentioned to him. It's an interesting story because you can look at it from two ways. John was basically uh, briefed by NASA personnel and people from the intelligence community to the effect that at Area 51 there were stored a number of crashed or recovered UFOs, a number of alien bodies, and also an extensive body of documentation that new personnel and people working on various projects would from time to time be required to review and read as part of their you know, day-to-day activities. And John was offered a position as like a custodian of these files and as a result he was obliged to read them and review them and deeply understand them and they told a fantastic story of crashed UFOs and strange beings and bodies found in the New Mexico desert and the deserts of Utah and Arizona and all sorts of places in from 1943 onwards, not actually 47, but from the early 40s onwards. And he said from time to time, you know, people would come into his office when he was working out at Area 51 and say, you know, we need to review these files. And and John would, you know, pull the files and they'll be reviewed by whoever wanted to review them, then they'd be returned. Now, John quite legitimately had questions. This was a one-year contract. And he said, you know, why was I exposed to these files for a period of one year? You know, why was I given access to what would presumably be one of the U.S. government's and NASA's most guarded secrets if I was only only with Air 365 days, you know, and, and that was it. He actually wondered if all this material was actually totally bogus and it was really kind of like a a test, if you like, for to test his loyalty. And certainly after that year finished, he was given very sort of pre- prestigious work within the intelligence community, doing outside contract work in security issues, etc. Today, he sort of views it as like a real hall of mirrors. You know, was he exposed to real documentation to Area 51? Or was it bogus, you know, and, and if, if afterwards, you know, you know, a year or two later, you went running to the New York Times or whatever, or even to the UFO community, you know, he'd be perceived as someone who, who wasn't a valued person who could, you know, keep secrets, etc. But if he did do that, no real secrets would be compromised. So he's very much in two minds even now in his 80s as to what he was actually exposed to or what he wasn't exposed to. And he was keen to stress he never saw any crashed UFOs or alien bodies in cryogenic storage. It was all documentation that was carefully placed in front of him. And in some respects, you could argue that this very much parallels the whole thing with Bob Lazar. I know a lot of people just outright dismiss Bob Lazar, but his story was almost like this, of deliberately exposing him to certain things, like documentation and craft, allegedly. You know, and I do sometimes wonder if the whole motivation of the Lazar thing was to see if he talked, and if he did, to sort of spread like a meme 
the idea that there are crashed UFOs at Area 51 and to see then who comes locking. You know, the Russians going to come locking, etc. And if they do, well, maybe we can catch a few spies in the process without actually compromising any real secrets. So I'll be the first to admit the story of John is a fascinating one because it ties in with NASA, Area 51, crashed UFOs, dead aliens, live aliens. But it could all be some sort of weird bizarre psychological warfare program to test the loyalty of, of someone who would lay to be offered a very lucrative position in, in private security. Chris? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I, I was just fascinated by some of the details that he came up with in describing some of the documentation. Uh, and uh, I think there was one uh, instance in there where he mentioned a, uh, a UFO crash that was investigated by the Air Force in Arizona in the early 50s. And and I wasn't in Arizona in the early 50s, but I have to tell you, we have Chris O'Brien, Nick Redfern, co-host all, Nick's author of a new book called The NASA Conspiracies. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in The Paracast. Is there a secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free sent right to your mailbox, plus a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. All types of batteries for all types of gadgets. We'll say it again. All types of batteries for, for all types, types of, of gadgets. gadgets. Electronics, toys, flashlights, computers, accessories, and more are at BatteryStation.com. Whatever type battery you need, alkaline, lithium, gel cell, NICAT, metal hydride, sealed lead acid, and more are at BatteryStation.com. Our homepage gives you quick access to ham, marine, police, fire, and aviation batteries. Plus, choose from our great selection of LED flashlights with no bulb to ever burn out and much longer battery life. Find many top brands, including Streamlight, Pelican, Surefire, Novatac, Gerber, and more at BatteryStation.com. You'll also find the most popular brands of ammunition and watertight cases for storing guns, food, electronics, survival gear, and more at BatteryStation.com. Call 417-257-7799. That's 417-257-7799. You will be surprised when you visit BatteryStation.com. In a coming-apart world, you need something to keep it tied together. That something is Atwood Rope, the highest quality rope made in the USA from exotic braids for military, rescue, arborists, shipyards, tow line, or boating. Quality rope at affordable prices you and your customers can depend on. Find a dealer or shop online at atwoodrope.net. Enter promo code RADIO to receive 100 feet of 550 paracord free with purchase. Atwood Rope, working to keep the world tied together. Hi, this 
this is Ted Anderson. Have you ever wondered why banks, stockbrokers, investment advisors won't talk about gold IRAs? They've been available since 1986, yet the financial industry won't recognize the value of gold for your retirement. Gold has outperformed paper investments, yet no word about IRAs. If you would like to have gold for your retirement, call 800-686-2237. Don't get left behind by rising inflation and low returns. Call 800-686-2237. Secure your future and call 1-800-686-2237. Men, take control of your prostate health without the risk of nasty side effects with Prostate Secure. Early detection, regular prostate exams, and PSA tests are a must for men over 40. Listen, if you have symptoms of an enlarged prostate but don't want to take a drug with possible nasty side effects, or if you're over 40, then use Prostate Secure, a natural dietary supplement for men. Prostate Secure is a scientifically formulated blend of clinically significant amounts of natural ingredients. It brings together the most powerful plant sterols like beta-cytosterol and saw palmetto, along with antioxidants such as vitamin D3, resveratrol, and lycopene to support good prostate health, proper urinary flow, function, and more. Check out ProstateSecure.com. Order online and save 10% with promo code SAVE10 or call 1-800-239-9432. That's 800-239-9432. Or visit ProstateSecure.com. Take control of your prostate health naturally with Prostate Secure. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. G-C-N. Great talk radio starts here. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. Catch as catch can. That's how we do it here. You know what happens here because we want equal time. We don't want Chris or Nick, both genial gentlemen, to fight each other from thousands of miles away because they can do that virtually because this is a paranormal radio show and anything can happen. Can you imagine, you know, in the 17th dimension, the fisticuffs? Consider the possibilities. The book is called NASA Conspiracies from Nick Redfern. I'm Gene Steinberger in the Powercast. And somehow, how did we get into UFOs from NASA? Curious. Do you think, is any evidence at all, Nick, just to raise the question, put it on the table, that NASA was responding in any way to the UFO situation? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it really depends on how you define responding. I mean, one of the things we do know for certain is that, you know, in its very earliest formative years, one of the things that NASA did was to contract a report from, uh, from the Brookings Institute became known as the Brookings Report, which essentially was like a study. A lot of people assume it was just about UFOs and aliens. It wasn't. Um, NASA contracted with the Brookings Institute to prepare a report um, on, you know, a whole range of aspects um, of NASA's work. And it was actually called Proposed Studies on the Implications of Peaceful Space Activities for Human Affairs, kind of like a a long-winded title. But it was, prese- it was prepared and submitted to the House of Representatives in 1961. It was kind of like a, a study of what, you know, the government could expect from NASA now that it was created and, you know, the forthcoming decades, etc. But one of the most interesting aspects of the report was one titled The Implications of a Discovery of Extraterrestrial Life. And this is important because it potentially, at least, sort of sets the scene for how NASA would respond to the issue of alien life in in years to come. For example, there are sections of the report, quite intriguingly, bearing in mind the whole face face on Mars 
controversy. There's one section of the report which talks about, hypothetically, how NASA on some of its future base missions to Mars or the Moon, etc., bearing in mind this is written in 1960, you know, might actually find ancient structures and formations on Mars and on the Moon. You know, which is sort of a, so almost like a chillingly eerie precursor of what happened with the face on Mars. There are also questions asked as to not when the general public should be told about the discovery of alien life, but even if the general public should be told, and how it might impact upon belief systems, religion, all sorts of things. Yes, it's certainly the case that the Brookings report was very much hypothetical in the sense of laying out scenarios for NASA in the event that A, B or C happened. But given the fact that, you know, this was after the uh, 10 years, 13 years after Kenneth Arnold's sighting and the UFO phenomenon, of course, was in full swing, I think this is a, a, an incredibly important document because it demonstrates the way in which NASA was obliged to respond to the nature of alien life. And clearly, NASA was, was fully aware of the potential social implications of what could happen from a, a, a you know, public statement that, yes, UFOs are amongst us, aliens are real, and the impact upon religion, the economy, and everything else. All this was spelled out in the Brookings report, and I don't think it's you know, entirely coincidental that we, the response that NASA makes today and has done with respect to UFOs and alien life seems to be driven from that report prepared only like a year or so after NASA's inception. Now, of course, the story is that the Russians began to space in the 1970s with Sputnik. We have to respond to the Russians. They beat us to outer space. And of course, President Kennedy states this goal. We will land on the moon in 1969. So the theory being, again, that this was all done because of the Russians. But the implication here, based on the Brookings report and everything you say, is there was a deeper motive all along. Well, you know, I think you can look at it from actually from both angles. I don't think it's one or the other. I think, you know, it, it goes both ways. I think there's, there's absolutely no doubt that, you know, when NASA began in its formative years, bearing in mind we were at the height of the Cold War, this wasn't just about scientific exploration. It was about, you know, prestige and... America's position on the world stage as it relates to outer space. I mean, yeah, a lot. Of, you know, America certainly trumped the Russians massively by landing a man on the moon, you know, or men on the moon in 1969. But you know, the Russians had launched the first satellite, Sputnik, in 57. They launched the first animal into space. They launched the first human into space, Yuri Gagarin. In that respect, bearing in mind the height of the Cold War. You know, the whole reds under the beds things when kids were being told at school, you know, when you hear the alarm, put your heads under the desks and, you know, kiss your ass goodbye, so to speak. To find that the Russians were, were so far ahead, the only real way it could be eclipsed was by, you know, landing a man on the moon. That would be the ultimate, you know, a, a achievement. So I think it, it was NASA's early days were as much about scientific exploration as they were as increasing America's position on the world stage as it related to the, you know, the early burgeoning ventures into outer space. Okay, but the other consideration being here that it looks as if, whatever else you think, the emphasis on the space program died not long after we landed on the moon. We got a few more there, and then in the 80s we had the space shuttle program, and if you can believe the current political scuttlebutt, well, NASA is all as good as dead because they're not going to continue the 
space shuttle. We're looking into private industry to ferry astronauts to the Soviet space stations, et cetera, et cetera. We may not get back to anywhere for another, what, 20 years or so, except maybe a moon thing? Yeah, I think, you know, this is a, an unfortunate thing, is that I think, you know, NASA... When the moon landings occurred, 69 to 72, NASA was really on a cusp of where, well, you know, 10 years from now, if we really push it, we could have like a permanent manned station on the moon. Um, but it was like it all other than, the, you know, the uh, Skylab and then in the early 80s, the space shuttle onwards. Yes, that was, you know, that was great news. And, you know, the idea of having a shuttlecraft that can go back and forth rather than like the Apollo rockets that are just one off. You know, it was a great development, but it was almost as if, um, you know, as if the as if NASA had sort of taken a step backwards or or didn't sort of, you know, jump on this achievement it had made and, and carry on the the impetus and, you know, just keep pushing forward. And I think a lot of people just lost interest. Um, I mean, you know, again, it's one of the sort of ironic things about society is that people lost interest after the first couple of moon landings. It was like, oh, yeah, it's another moon landing. You know, the first one was fantastic. It, but then after the third one, it was, oh, yeah, they're going to go up and bring a few rocks back. And, you know, what times I love Lucy on. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that, that's how it became, unfortunately. And I think part of it could be public relations, you know, the idea of, of people not understanding and realizing the sheer importance of the fact that we, we were no longer tethered to the earth, but a lot of people just did not care. You know, it's kind of like today. There's so much stuff going on in the world today that, you know, a lot of people, I mean, so a lot of serious, deadly stuff going on, but all people are worried about is, you know, what the latest Hollywood starlet's up to and whatever. And I think that's something that parallels what was going back on in the 70s with, you know, the Apollo programs, etc., that um, people just didn't care that much, unfortunately. It was just, oh, yeah, that's that's interesting the first time. And after that, it was, well, so what? And I think, you know, NASA needs to find a way to galvanize the public, the media, and the government. You know, a lot of people in governments just want to shut down a lot of NASA programs today. You know, it, I think it's an incredible thing that we could one day send men to Mars and women to Mars and find out the truth about the face on Mars. But, you know, it's almost like, well, what's Paris Hilton up to? Okay, so if the politicians, <laughs> you know, the politicians, they don't know what's going on, then that's why they want to shut NASA down? Well, I don't think, I think a lot of it is it's just ignorance. You know, it's like, you know, I see people like certain politicians from Alaska who know nothing. They know nothing. And they want to run for president. You know, and, and that's, they don't take the time to find out the important things. Um, and I think that's what's happening with NASA. You know, NASA could be, has the potential to be such a groundbreaking, powerful agency taking us to sort of such an uncharted realms. But for many people, it's just like, oh, yeah, well, they went to the moon 40 years ago, but what have they done since? And I think there's, I think a lot of people, you know, I think it's wrong, but I think a lot of people do view it like that. It's like, should we really be doing stuff in outer space when, you know, of the nation's 300 pounds and diabetic and crimes out of control or whatever, you know, it shouldn't be trying to clear. <laughs> right, and trillion-dollar defense budgets. Yeah, you know, exactly. we'll get into the politics, and we can't get away from politics when you talk about NASA because it's a political agency, folks. 
And you can't get away from our forums because they consume so much a part of what we do on the Paracast. Go to forum.paracast.com. That's forum.paracast.com. We have Nick Redfern, author of NASA Conspiracies. Chris O'Brien is our other co-host. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in. The Paracast. Yes, you are. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. If you own an Apple iPhone and love to listen to your favorite programs on GCN, I've got good news for you. I'm proud to announce that GCN has a brand new iPhone app available for our dedicated listeners at GCNlive.com. Listen to your favorite hard-hitting GCN programs live or on demand right on your iPhone. And the best part? The GCN iPhone app can be yours absolutely free. Download the iPhone app today by clicking on the banner at GCNlive.com. Again, that's GCNlive.com. We the people grow cotton, weave fabric, engrave ink, embed strips and fibers to protect from counterfeit, and carting to a private bank, having it led back at interest, forcing taxes to service debt. This capitalism, or was Jefferson correct when stating a central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army? Ted Anderson, I'm placing a free silver dollar in a book that explains our monetary system. Call for your copy, 800-686-2237. It's time to understand the system. Call 800-686-2237. That's 800-686-2237. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Hour number two of the Paracast. I'm Gene Steinberg. We have two co-hosts for the price of one. Nick Redfern, author of the NASA Conspiracies, Busy Little Bee, coming up with another great book. Chris O'Brien is our co-host. Chris has taken huge numbers of notes about this book. And we want to go through some of that for possibly this hour, emphasize all the questions you have. And then maybe on a little bit later, we have a few questions from our forums. We'll ask Chris. Some good ones. Yeah. Okay. Um, Chris is working for Dan. That's why he's taking so many notes. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) no, I'm just I'm Nick. I'm no, really. I'm fascinated by by some of the stuff that's in this book. And and one of the things we were talking about, the Challenger. Uh, uh, space shuttles, uh, the Challenger and the Columbia and stuff. And there's a really interesting story in here that evidently uh, in 83, uh, Carl Sagan received a, a, a really interesting, mysterious handwritten note that had uh, some pretty interesting predictions in it that uh, included the um, the crash of uh, the explosion of the of the, uh, the, the Columbia space, uh, you know, uh, space shuttle and you want to talk about that the name uh uh m springfield uh just in itself is very suggestive of course uh you know the same name as leonard springfield but why don't you address that a little bit because that's a really interesting story yeah i mean one of the one of the things i often do you know when i'm investigating government involvement in different things is to use the freedom of information act to try and secure files from government agencies and one of the things that sort of really surprised me um, was that when I, I actually found out uh, a couple of years ago that the FBI had been involved in an investigation that suggested that maybe the first space shuttle um, disaster challenger uh, when it exploded in 86 and killed all the crew on takeoff, um, 
that the FBI had, had deeply investigated the case because there were a lot of rumours floating around about was it sabotage or not. So I filed a request with the FBI to get hold of this file, and I got an extensive file, about two inches thick, that talks about all the different conspiracy theories surrounding both the 1986 explosion and, and Columbia's um, destruction in 2003, but also it referenced um, a, this weird story concerning Carl Sagan. Um, of course, you know, he was one of the, the formative people, I suppose, who sort of blended, you know, mainstream science for the popular culture. You know, he did it in a very skillful way where the average person on the street, you know, could understand, appreciate, and also be entertained by, you know, sort of scientific issues. And um, one of the things that was contained in the file was this letter that had been sent by some mysterious person named M. Springfield to Sagan in 1983 that made all, all sorts of prophecies about the Columbia Space Shuttle um, getting destroyed, which ultimately it did. Um, and also like a third world war breaking out, but, um, and which, you know, didn't or at least hasn't happened yet unless you consider, you know, we're in the third world war with the war on terror. But actually made a number of intriguing statements, you know, that Columbia would be destroyed, which eventually it was, you know, it, it exploded in 2003 over Texas. It also talked about how Poland would be free by 1990, which it was, you know, with the whole perestroika and, um, you know, breaking away from the former Soviet Union, etc. Um, and very, very weird letter um, to the extent that Sagan contacted the FBI, who made a number of inquiries, couldn't track down who this Springfield person was. But it was very much sort of, sort of an apocalyptic communication that was sent to, to Sagan, you know, warning about the destruction of the space shuttle, the end of the end of civilization, nuclear war, etc. And, um, and by all accounts, it was taken very seriously by the FBI because it was suggesting that one of NASA's space shuttles would be destroyed. And ironically, almost 20 years to the day, the Columbia Space Shuttle was destroyed, just as the person had claimed in this particular letter. So what do you think of that, Gene? You know, these letters always seem to come up after the fact. You know, they turn up, but before the fact, we don't see the predictions, or if you ever come true. Uh, that's right. I mean, th this is one of the intriguing areas, you know, not just talking about the space shuttle, but Poland being, you know, free of the Soviet Union. Who would have thought in 83 that, that there wouldn't be a Soviet Union or that, you know, Poland wouldn't be under sort of the grip of the Kremlin or whatever? Um, now, certainly there were some predictions that didn't come true. I mean, one was that was made was that New York and San Francisco would sort of literally collapse into the oceans and a third world war would begin in 1998 um, yeah, and, and also the, the idea that the world would be poisoned by some sort of weird virus well that didn't happen but I mean is that there's barely a day goes by now that you don't hear on the news oh you need an inoculation against this virus that virus you know it's like everybody in his brother's virus um, so you know there were a, a number of weird sort of precursors in this prediction to certain things that have actually occurred in the last few years. But, I mean, that's just part of the story. I mean, when it comes to the destruction of Challenger, which occurred in January 86, just after takeoff, um, this is probably the most extensive aspect of the FBI's investigation of space shuttle-based conspiracies. 
Um, a number of people in the wake of the Challenger disruption in January 86 approached the FBI and said, you know, I was watching it on TV and I saw what looked like a laser-guided weapon hit the fuel tank of the space shuttle. Now, of course, the FBI, you know, in inevitably and immediately began investigating these stories. And, and they weren't coming, the interesting thing is they weren't coming from crazy people. One of them was actually somebody who lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, who, which is where I live, so I've been trying to track the person down but I haven't found them yet, who said that, who actually worked in the video um, production industry and said, you know, he'd analysed the footage, slowed it down, blown it up, etc., and had seen what looked like a laser-type weapon or laser guided device hit the, hit one of the fuel hit the fuel tank and exploded um the fbi was so concerned they actually sent agents out to the man's home not to threaten him or anything like that but they sat down with him in his living room and watched the footage on his tv you know and asked him you know can you replay this bit can you replay that bit and, and that's precisely what he did um one of the weirdest stories was a guy who was clearly deluded in by the FBI's own admission. You know, he'd, he'd made a number of claims previously that certain space shuttle missions would be uh, sabotaged. But literally 24 hours before Challenger exploded, he phoned his local news station, which was in Florida, and said, you know, that the space shuttle is going to explode on takeoff. And they're like, well, whatever. But they were sufficiently concerned to at least contact the FBI, which they did. And, of course, 24 hours later, the shuttle really did explode. And the FBI were like, well, you know, the guy's crazy, but this time he actually got it right. And certainly the weirdest story of all that the FBI investigated was a, a case of a woman who said that she'd been contacted by what's actually described in the files as paranormal beings. That's how the FBI describes it. Paranormal beings who almost like channeled, I mean, I do literally mean channeled, information into her head that the, the space shuttle is going to be destroyed 48 hours from now. And she contacted the, the FBI. And again, the FBI went out to interview her and said, well, you know, ask questions along the lines of, well, who are these paranormal beings? Where are you getting your information from? And it was you know, a case of, well, they, they channel the information to me. And what, what I find interesting about this particular story is that 27 years later, excuse me, 24 years later, no less than 28 pages of this particular investigation into this paranormal angle of the space shuttle explosion, 28 pages of the documentation are still classified in the, in the specific interests of national security. Wow. So... Clearly, you know, there's some, there is some weirdness attached to the uh, Challenger accident of 1986, even if some people, you know, go with the idea that it was all just a, a tragic accident. We'll get into more of the Challenger accident and a lot more. Our co-host, Nick Redfern, is author of The NASA Conspiracies. Our other co-host is Chris O'Brien. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in... Where, uh, where are we? Although, yeah, the Paracast, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, you do that so well, man. Hi. 
Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. Most importantly, we care about you. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Namecheap or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash Namecheap. See you online. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. On the average, Americans work between 45 to 50 years hoping to build up enough wealth to retire and live out their golden years. Unfortunately, with taxation, the rising cost of food, energy, housing, and medical, many retirees are forced to live below the poverty line. Is this a flaw free enterprise, or is our monetary unit we call the Federal Reserve Note forcing us into perpetual debt, ensuring inflation and higher taxes? These questions and more can be answered by reading G. Edward Griffin's book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Congressman Ron Paul states it's what every American needs to know about central bank power. A gripping adventure into the secret world of international banking cartel. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. I will give a silver dollar from the early 1900s to anyone who purchases this book. Call 1-800-686-2237 and order a copy today. It's critical that the public be made aware of the system. Call and order your copy today at 1-800-686-2237. That's 1-800-686-2237. If you own a septic system or if you're facing costly septic system replacement, this message is for you. When you want to stop paying for pump outs and avoid backups, when you've had enough of the foul odors and costly repairs, use BioSafe One Septic Solution. Now there's an easy-to-use, 100% guaranteed answer to all your septic system problems. BioSafe One Septic Solution. BioSafe One is patented and made specifically for all septic systems and made by the same team of scientists who help clean up the Exxon Valdez oil spill. BioSafe One decontaminates and removes sludge, stops costly pump-outs and repairs, and removes septic system stench, all with a 100% success rate. See what gives BioSafe One Septic Solution the advantage over any other septic product at BioSafeOne.com. That's B-I-O-S-A-F-E-O-N-E.com. BioSafeOne.com. Or call toll-free 1-866-424-6663. That's 1-866-424-6663. BioSafe One, the guaranteed, bio-friendly, money-saving way to clean your septic system. I'm concerned about food for my family in the event of an emergency, and I know you are too. Are you ready? Don't wait for an emergency to happen. Put a plan together now with quality dehydrated food from Ready Reserve Foods. For nearly 40 years, Ready Reserve Foods has been in continuous operation canning the finest in dehydrated foods. Other companies just broker canned foods. Ready Reserve is the manufacturer controlling quality from start to finish with double enameled cans and nitrogen packing for maximum shelf life. Ready Reserve offers a balanced selection of fruits, vegetables, dairy products, proteins, and grains. Choose from a variety of pre-selected units or order by individual can to customize your own plan. When you purchase from Ready Reserve Foods, you are buying factory direct at wholesale prices. Call today for a free catalog, 1-800-453-2202 or visit readyreservefoods.com. Call 1-800-453-2202. Ready Reserve Foods, factory direct, wholesale pricing. 
on air, online, and on demand. We are the GCN Radio Network. This is Jacques Vallée. You're listening to the podcast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. You're in the Paracast. I'm Gene Steinberg. We're talking about the NASA conspiracies by Nick Redfern. I'm Gene Steinberg. Chris O'Brien has been asking some very pointed questions. Let's pursue. Nick, another thing that uh, comes up from time to time uh, in my research is uh, some pretty interesting events that have occurred down in South America over the years um, uh, pertaining to what appear on the surface to be some sort of uh, either atmospheric anomalies or if you want to get conspiratorial about it, um, the crash of uh, alien saucers or alien technology, of course, uh, Vahinia springs to mind. And um, there was mention uh, at the time of the Vahinia incident that NASA uh, personnel uh, were somehow summoned to the Vahinia site. Uh, and then also there was, a, uh, I think, a crash in, in Bolivia that, that you talk about in your book. What is NASA's role, do you think, in, the, in terms of assisting uh, other militaries around the world, other governments uh, for events like this. Uh, there seems to be some sort of indication that NASA is involved in a sort of transnational fashion. You want you want to discuss that? Yeah, that's actually a very good question, good issue. I mean, you know, the thing is with NASA, of course, if UFOs are nuts and bolts craft, and some of them have crashed to Earth, you know, obviously it's a controversial issue, but if, if this has taken place, then... NASA, obviously, is one of the agencies, like NORAD, for example, that is at the forefront of tracking what's going on in the atmosphere or in, in near-Earth orbit or, you know, outer space, etc. Um, now, for, of course, you know, NASA doesn't just track its own space satellites and spacecrafts. It's also, you know, involved in tracking um, the spacecraft and space satellites of foreign nations. You know, you look at the Russians and the Chinese or whoever, you know, we know that they send up, as we do, space satellites that are, whose sole role, if you like, is to spy on, on foreign nations. You know, spy satellites with extensive recording equipment, you know, cameras, etc. And for that reason, you know, NASA has its eyes on the skies at all times. If, for example, one particular agency says, you know, we've had a report of something crashing to the ground... It looks like some sort of spacecraft. We don't know what it is. Is it one of yours? And NASA says, well, it's not ours. And then the Air Force, whoever, says, well, have you tracked any sort of Russian craft re-entering the atmosphere? And they say no. Well, then it's like that takes the, the whole controversy to a completely different level. Um, so, well, what is it? And, you know, I think this is, this is an important issue to remember or to focus upon the idea that, NASA are often very much uh, consulted and, and questioned by the intelligence community because they're the ideal people to, you know, say, oh, well, yeah, it was one of our craft that went out of control, and if it wasn't, then, you know, we need to find out what it was. And this is certainly the case with this incident that you mentioned in Bolivia. This is a very strange story, but it's a significant one because, again, it was a case that I was able to secure official documentation from or on, I should say, from NASA. And basically occurred in May 1978. 
when some sort of object was reported in the Bolivian media as having crashed in a remote part of Bolivia on a hillside. And it was described as like an egg-shaped object. Not actually a large one, but somewhere in the region of 12 to 15 feet. Some people said in length, other people said in diameter. So we're not really sure of the shape, but you know, the reference to a diameter almost makes it sound like a saucer-shaped object. Essentially what happened was that the story started doing the rounds. It actually even reached the, the eyes and ears of UPI, and um, you know, the stories were, were put out on the uh, news circuits, etc., and the, I actually got hold of a, of a whole variety of files on this from, from NASA which talk about this object coming down on this remote area of hillside in Bolivia in May 78 and NASA answering questions from the CIA. You know, the CIA were asking, you know, is it a satellite? Is it a false alarm? And NASA is saying, well, it's nothing of ours and we've not tracked anything Russian coming down. And then the rumors started circulating that personnel were sent from NASA to Bolivia to check out the area and that they may actually have even been deceived by the Bolivian government that the Bolivian government may have wanted to recover this object for themselves and keep NASA out of the loop and, and by default the entire US government out of the loop which, which actually may have happened it's sort of a bit of a grey area so to speak but um, certainly the documentation from the CIA and NASA does talk about some sort of object coming down, even about impact um, markings on the ground where it looks like somebody hit the ground and slid down the side of the hill, but also with no evidence at all that this was a terrestrial craft. Now, of course, the documents only tell part of the story. The issue of NASA personnel going out there and secretly being asked to evaluate the nature of this craft that comes from sources like Leonard Stringfield, who said he'd been told certain data by various whistleblowers. This is an intriguing case. You know, in some cases, it could, you could argue it's more important than Roswell because we actually have official documentation talking about the recovery of a craft that no one could identify. But then, you know, you enter this sort of black hole of where everybody denies it and everybody kind of just goes home as well. Well, we, didn't, we looked, we didn't find anything, and... Um, you know, that's one of the frustrating things we faced with. But certainly the case itself was, it was a very, very intriguing one. Another one that uh, NASA personnel uh, were, I guess, by inference implicated was the Vahinia incident in 96 yeah. uh, in Brazil. And did you, did you do any research on that particular one? Because there were claims that NASA personnel were involved in the, um, I guess, uh, somehow in the autopsy of the creatures that supposedly took place at the hospital and, and uh, and there was also um, the possibility that the NASA personnel have been involved in other sort of landings or crash retrieval uh, type operations. Uh, have, you, have you been able to ascertain uh, the extent of, uh, of their involvement in other cases? Yeah, I mean, I did look into the, you know, the, the, the whole Bahia case and whatever. The only reason I didn't mention that in the book was specifically because I, I just could not add anything new to it. I always feel it's important if I'm going to write a book that... I don't just want to rehash, you know, old material. I want to try and bring something new to the table. But right. certainly in terms of crashed UFO stories in general, I mean, there are a lot of intriguing stories involving NASA. I mean, one of them, the most famous one, I suppose, is the Kecksburg story of 1965, where right. some sort of object came down um, outside of Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, December 65. So, so for almost, I think it's actually like, 
45 years ago this week or last week, something like that. And the story is that some sort of object was seen sort of flaming across the skies and actually altered its trajectory, which, of course, something like a meteorite simply cannot do, and crashed in woods just outside of Kecksburg. And, and being a relatively small, you know, community that rumour soon spread around town that something had come down and that there was a huge military cordon and that NASA and the Air Force were there, you know, keeping people away from the area. There were stories of members of the public who'd secretly managed to get through the woods seeing like a Volkswagen car-sized um, object that was sort of acorn-shaped that was allegedly loaded aboard like a, a military transport vehicle and, you know, taken to destinations who knows where. I'll tell you what we'll get into more of. The Kecksburg incident, and of course, we've had Stan Gordon on the PowerCast a couple mm. of times because he's been so closely connected with the research. We have Nick Redfern, author of The NASA Conspiracies. Chris O'Brien's the co-host. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in. Uh, I, I think we're in the PowerCast. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! Of the Rockwell. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack! Attack! of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Normal blood pressure, naturally. How would that make you feel? I'm Don from New Mexico. January of 2000, I had a heart attack. Then my real health began going downhill, and I had uh, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, poor vision, and I really wasn't sleeping well. I was a mess, pretty much. Don reports dramatic improvements with heart and body extract. I started taking uh, heart and body extract, and from within a few days, I started sleeping a lot better. My blood pressure uh, normalized, my blood sugar normalized, and uh, my sleep really did improve. Experience these benefits and more when your body gets what it needs with the assistance of heart and body extract. Order at hbextract.com or call 866-295-5305. That's hbextract.com or call 866-295-5305. And folks, I did not expect this at all. By the 7th, 8th, and ninth day, I saw dramatic improvements from taking heart and body extract. Details at hbextract.com or call 866-295-5305 for heart and body extract. Hi, I'm Mark Craighead, founder of Crossbreed Holsters. I designed our top-selling holster, the Super Tuck Deluxe, to solve the problems of being poked, pinched, and gouged while carrying concealed. The Super Tuck Deluxe is the most comfortable, most concealable holster on the market today. We offer a two-week free trial and a lifetime warranty. Visit us at crossbreedholsters.com. Don't forget... 
crossbreedholsters.com. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. Have you ever wondered why banks, stockbrokers, investment advisors won't talk about gold IRAs? They've been available since 1986, yet the financial industry won't recognize the value of gold for your retirement. Gold has outperformed paper investments, yet no word about IRAs. If you would like to have gold for your retirement, call 800-686-2237. Don't get left behind by rising inflation and low returns. Call 800-686-2237. Secure your future and call 1-800-686-2237. The food storage industry leader has done it again. Introducing FDG Clubs and Survival Bucks from the Freeze-Dry Guy. For over 39 years, the Freeze-Dry Guy has served various government agencies and the private sector with the finest in storable foods and emergency rations. If you've wanted to build emergency food supplies but couldn't afford it, now you can. Go to freezedryguy.com, click on products, and look for the Freeze Dry Guy clubs to pay as you go. Now you can build food storage without going into debt. Choose from a payment range of $95 to $450 per month. Our clubs work with everyone's budget. Plus, when you join Freeze Dry Guy clubs, you'll get additional rewards. For example, this month, get 10% back in survival bucks on all purchases in the Freeze Dry Guy product line, plus free shipping within the lower 48 states on any order amount. Hurry, go to freezedryguy.com or call 866 4043 That's freezedryguy.com or call 866-404-3663. The Freeze Dry Guy, the best you can buy. America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to the Paracast. We have Chris O'Brien, who's trying to figure out whether we are or are not in the PowerCast. I'm Gene Steinberg, your genial sometimes host. Chris O'Brien has been asking questions of Nick Redfern, our other co-host, who's author of The NASA Conspiracies. Let me interrupt very briefly, though, Nick, about Kecksburg. Is it all possible that was just maybe a secret weapon or a secret aircraft, not something that was weird? Yeah, I mean, a number of people suggested. I mean, one of the initial theories was the idea that it was a, a Soviet space probe or space vehicle. And there's, there's actually no doubt that a, a Soviet space vehicle did actually re-enter the atmosphere on that very same day as the Kecksburg incident, but apparently crashed over Canada or broke up over Canada. But even though NASA today say that Kecksburg has nothing to do with that incident, it, it is kind of unusual that of all the dates when something could have come down in Kecksburg, it was the exact same date that something Soviet did actually burn, a spacecraft did actually burn up in the atmosphere and come down. Now, you know, people have suggested that the object they saw wasn't just debris or wreckage, it was like some sort of in, fairly intact vehicle. You would imagine that if something had plummeted from near-Earth orbit and suffered the sort of rigors of going through the atmosphere and slamming into the ground, it would hardly be an intact acorn-shaped Volkswagen-type vehicle. You know, you'd imagine it would be just pummeled and destroyed. Um, But that wasn't the case. And people did say that they saw you know, the object alter its trajectory trajectory and direction, which, again, you know, there's no way that any sort of object plowing through the atmosphere can do that. Because you had these various anomalies, a couple of, a few years ago, a dedicated researcher named Leslie Keane, who was sort of deeply aware and had investigated all the many and varied complexities of Kecksburg, actually brought suit against NASA, which is, you know, almost unheard of, to try and prize open... NASA's files on Kecksburg. And what NASA actually said was was kind of interesting. You know, they didn't deny having files, 
and they actually did release 30 or 40 pages, which didn't really, you know, answer any deep questions as such. They were just sort of fairly innocuous documentation. But what was more interesting is the more Leslie pressed, she found that, you know, certain files that should be existing or that should be available, NASA couldn't find. You know, and it's kind of like the thing we see with the Air Force and, and Roswell. Well, we went looking, and we think it was probably a mogul balloon and crash test dummies, but we actually couldn't find any files, you know, and that's, that's what NASA is saying. It's like, okay, you know, we don't deny that certain files should have existed on various issues that might conceivably be related to Kecksburg, but we couldn't find them. You know, and it's, it's almost like a, a damage control where agencies don't want to deny the existence of something, presumably because it might surface later on and make them look bad. So they say, we will search and we cannot find it. Now, a lot of people presume that means, well, there's nothing to find, but it's almost like a, a very cleverly worded thing. You say, well, we couldn't find anything, but by definition, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist or some other arm of NASA isn't hiding it. It just simply means that the people who did the search potentially aren't cleared to know what was going on. I think that, that does apply to Kecksburg. Well, when it comes to comes to crash retrievals and and that sort of thing, Kecksburg, I think is is a very is a classic uh, uh, case because we do have uh, eyewitnesses, a lot of eyewitnesses. We do have some documentation. Something uh, obviously did happen there. Um, of course, Stan uh, Gordon, as as Gene mentioned, has uh, looked into that extensively. In fact, that was his very first case as an investigator. What are some of the other uh, examples uh, that we have? For instance, uh, you have a chapter in there about uh, European sightings during the 60s and 70s. Um, uh, what sort of involvement uh, did you find uh, that NASA had in those uh, instances? Yeah, this is actually really weird. I mean, one of the things I found was that NASA were being briefed regularly in the period 1973 to 74 on, a ho- on a literally a massive scale of UFO activity that was taking place in Spain. Now, this is sort of very much like sort of the old school stuff we, we get in the early 50s with UFO landings, aliens taking soil samples, you know, vehicle interference cases with engines stalling on cars, etc., etc. A massive wave of sightings from the early part of 73 right through to late 1974. The, the sort of thing we don't really see today, but that we did see, you know, in the classic waves in the U.S., as I said, in the 50s, 60s and 70s. What I found particularly intriguing you know, is that all these cases of like vehicle interference where somebody's driving down the road late at night in their car, you know, the lights go out, the engine fails, this craft comes down and these entities come towards the vehicle, the person has missing time, etc. Or, you know, somebody just sees these weird little figures kind of scooping up dirt from the side of the road or things that you, you would expect to see in like a Donald Kehoe book of the 50s or whatever. Not only were they happening in Spain in the early 70s, but NASA was being fully briefed on all these incidents and of course you know you have to ask the question why would NASA be so interested in ground-based sightings of UFOs in Spain for an agency whose role predominantly is the realm of outer space you know I could understand that NASA would be interested in astronaut sightings and things like that but the very notion of you know not even American sightings but but sightings in Spain it sort of begs the question is there some sort of clandestine group within NASA that not only takes note of outer space issues relative to UFOs and alien life, but actually what's going on down here as well? And, I, you know, I think that's a possibility. I mean, some of these reports are from Spain are sort of really, really weird. I mean, 
you know, the, the sort of thing, literally saying like something out like of the X-Files, you know, somebody's car stopped on the road and these seven-foot-tall, long-haired aliens stride out of the craft towards their vehicle and the guy hits the accelerator, spins the wheels and heads off into the fast lane while these aliens are stuck on the side, you know, on the hard shoulder of the highway <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> right, getting uh, flower samples and uh, dirt samples. Yeah, exactly. Uh, is this the same uh, time period when they had the uh, the case of the aliens that were supposedly living in the cave and, and they were buying milk with uh, with gold, or was that earlier? Some of these Spanish cases kind of get jumbled up in my in my my brain because there's so yeah, many I think strange that, I think the ones. NASA stuff was was actually later, or yeah, it was later than that. roughly the same period. But I mean, I, I know from you know recollection that I think they from early '73 to late '74, NASA compiled something like 70 or 80 reports wow. from Spain alone of you know profound close encounters, not lights in the sky, but people you know literally feeling their lives were in jeopardy by the the close proximity of either these beings or these craft. Yeah. I've got a, a few questions here from the forum that I'd like to uh, toss at you. Um, the, the first, uh, it's actually about three questions, but uh, they all basically uh, kind of refer to the same sort of uh, subject, uh, and that is the actual formation of NASA. Uh, the question is, what is the historical makeup of NASA regarding groups which formed the institution and and who actually ran the early formation of NASA from 47 to 40 to 53? Yeah, well, that's actually a very good question. I mean, what we really have to look at is the fact that in October 1957, the Soviets launched Sputnik, you know, which really, at the height of the Cold War, which really did panic you know, the Western world, and particularly the United States, you know, the, the idea that, wow, we've actually been trumped in right. the race of space. Um, and then Lake of the Dog, yeah. Yeah, then you got Lake of the Dog, who went up just, you know, shortly afterwards, and Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space. You know, as I said, the first satellite, the first animal, the first man, were all, you know, done by the Russians. And you can understand this was something that really concerned the United States. But what happened was that, you know, this was when President Eisenhower, Dwight D. Eisenhower, was, you know, running the country. And he and his staff, you know, they sort of astutely recognized that, that the world was changing. You know, the old days of the Second World War, etc., were gone. That the domain of outer space was going to play some sort of significant role in the world's future. And what happened was that prior to NASA, you had an organization called the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, which essentially was a body that was delving into sort of early research into rocketry, etc., in the atmosphere, but that ultimately, you know, would go beyond the atmosphere. The idea was that, well, you know, the Russians have done this and they've done that. We really need to have an equivalent agency that can really play a forceful role in outer space. What happened was that by the early months of 1958, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, NACA as it was known, was really sort of digging deep into how some sort of agency could run the, the banner, if you like, or fly the flag of, of outer space research. And in April 58, Eisenhower actually stood before Congress and announced the establishment of what originally was known as the National Aeronautical and Space Agency. We have Nick Redfern, the books, The NASA Conspiracies. Chris O'Brien's the co-host. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. There you go. (laughs) 
Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back, it says, separating signal from noise. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. Hey neighbors, we have one more thing to talk about, and that's more merchandise at the official Paracast store. We have hats, we have jackets, we even have a flip video camcorder customized with the Paracast logo at the official Paracast store. It's all now available at the official Paracast store, store store.theparacast.com. We all know that Berkey Water Purification Systems are the most trusted name in water filtration. As an authorized Berkey dealer for over five years and serving thousands of satisfied customers, the Berkey guy offers amazing specials for Berkey Water Filtration Systems. The Berkey Light Systems include a set of self-sterilizing and recleanable black purification elements that purify water by removing chlorine, pathogenic bacteria, cysts and parasites to non-detectable levels and remove harmful chemicals such as herbicides and pesticides. Order the Berkey Light System today complete with two black Berkey elements for only $209 and the Berkey guy will include three sport Berkey water bottles and ship everything to you free of charge. That's right, three sport Berkey water bottles and free shipping. An $87 value, yours free. Call the Berkey guy at 1-877-886-3653. That's 1-877-886-3653. Or order online at goberkey.com. That's goberkey.com today. You know the Constitution like the back of your hand. You've read books, listened to podcasts, attended lectures, surfed websites, and watched videos. You've made liberty your life's goal. But something seems to be missing. Stickers from LibertyStickers.com Exercise your freedom of speech with the world's most dangerous bumper stickers. That's LibertyStickers.com But wait, there's more. You can buy Liberty Stickers wholesale. Get them for 99 cents each when you put 100 or more in your shopping cart in any combination. Sell them or give them away. They're great for gun shows, flea markets, fairs, outreach, and more. Earn extra money, promote freedom, and spread the word. Need custom stickers, labels, or decals for your organization or business? Liberty Stickers makes them. Go to libertystickers.com to order or call 877-873-9626. Libertystickers.com, the world's most dangerous stickers. Extend your life with After my second heart attack, I knew I needed more help than I had. That's when Extendivite came into my life. Made from garlic, cayenne, and five other herbs, I started to feel better in a very short time. My name's Don Wiskin, and I'm here because of Extendivite. Extendivite gave me more energy than I've had in years. I am the only one in my house right now that's not sick from colds or flus. And I owe that all to Extendivite. My name is Rick, and I'm healthy because of Extendivite. To get your Extendivite, call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit the website at heartdrop.com. That's H-E-A-R-T-D-R-O-P dot com. Extend your life with Extendivite. 
Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Hi, this is Ted Phillips listening to the Paracast, and it's as good as it gets, believe me. We have Nick Redfern. The book is The NASA Conspiracies, and we're exploring the conspiracies and UFOs and all sorts of great information here. Chris O'Brien's the co-host. I'm Gene Steinberger in the Paracast. What Chris has been doing and will do during this segment of the Paracast is to continue to go over questions from our listeners. So here we go, Chris. Okay. Here's an interesting one, Nick. I think you'll like this. We, we kind of uh, sort of touched on this uh, subject a little bit uh, earlier, but the question is, and, and first it starts out with an observation. It seems that over the years, NASA's scope has greatly diminished. For those of us who have grown up with the idea that one of the greatest achievements of humankind has been manned space exploration, the agency's <laughs> acronym might as well stand for not as satisfying anymore. It seems oh, I as love that. The- I love that. <laughs> Let's stop right there. Let's quit while we're ahead. <laughs> well, hold on. It seems as if the agency's greatest achievements have been from the last century. So with that in mind, here's the question. Do you see NASA as being the powerful clandestine organization that it once was, or has it perhaps become so powerfully clandestine that it's actually doing all sorts of amazing things while giving us the impression that it is practically as useful as a boar's teat? <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure it's that simplistic, but I mean, I would agree that I think, you know, when the moon landings occurred, there's a very good argument for saying that it was almost like an anticlimax afterwards. Right. And I think the the important thing that should have happened, or the most critical thing, was that NASA capitalized on it and said, you know... When Kennedy said in 62, we're going to land a man on the moon before the end of the 60s, we're going to have a manned presence on the moon, permanent presence by the start of the 21st century, and we're going to have astronauts going to Mars by 2020. Had that sort of vision been laid out forcefully, enthusiastically, authoritatively, then I think NASA would be in a very different position to that. Well, publicly, I think. Nick, I think what the questioner is, is, is kind of hinting at here is that, that NASA is really actually involved in all sorts of things, like a, a secret space program, if you will. And it's just giving us the impression that there's really nothing going on, that their manned space flight and space travel is all a kind of a thing of the past. What sort of yeah. credence do you give uh, the, the whole idea of a secret space program that we're already on the moon, we're already on Mars, that sort of thing? Oh, no, I, I actually think that's a very valid area. I mean, one of the reasons why I think it's valid is that we can draw a parallel with what we know from conventional aviation. For example, when the stealth bomber you know, this weird-looking big black triangular-shaped thing with the jagged edges was rolled out of the hangar for the public and the media to see in 1989. It had actually been flying for, you know, 10 years before that at prototype stage. So, you know, the idea that the space shuttle, 30 years this year on, from excuse me, next year, but the space shuttle first flew in 81, you know, 30 years on, do we really believe that the space shuttle is still the best that the U.S. military or government or NASA has, you know, given the fact that only seven years after Kennedy made his speech, we were on the moon. For 30 years, we've not really got much further. I think that's sort of stretching credibility. 
So I actually don't rule out at all in the slightest, and I actually think there's a great deal of credibility to the notion that there could be a space program running in tandem to the one we know. You know, it makes sense for the space shuttle to send to go up and put satellites into orbit because that's what it does extremely well. But if you want to travel to the you know further extremes, etc., you're going to need something else. And I think one of the things that actually ties into this very well is the story of Gary McKinnon. Yeah, um, that was going to say. Gary yeah, McKinnon is this computer hacker from England um, who hacked into NASA in search of information on UFOs and advanced technologies. And one of the things that NASA, excuse me, that McKinnon said he saw on NASA computers that he hacked into were references to reams and reams of names of what looked like military personnel that were all listed under the intriguing title of non-terrestrial officers. Now, you know, this is sort of a very strangely worded phrase, non-terrestrial officers, and, you know, NASA itself has either been totally silent or, you know, chooses to ignore these terminologies, as does the military, the Pentagon, and everybody else. And to me, it doesn't sound, you know, like something that McKinnon would suddenly spin out of thin air. It sounds like, for all the world, like some sort of, almost like a, you know, an equivalent of an outer space um, aircraft carrier or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Some sort of crew on, on some sort of advanced vessel. Um, now, we can never know for sure, of course, but I think things like this, you know, open us up to the idea that there could be um, a, a clandestine space program going on. Uh, you know, I address, address this issue quite seriously in the book, that, you know, there's maybe a systematic study has already been done on the face of Mars. You know, who knows? Perhaps we've made historic place, space flights to other worlds, you know, in, in our solar system. Who knows? And we just haven't been told. Um, right. I, I suppose the cynical side of me would, would not find that surprising, you know, that <laughs> somebody's already gone to Mars and they choose not to tell us about it. You know, that would just be typical. So. Well, sure, how do you even. get a handle on that, you know, a rumor that we've already been to Mars, we have the clandestine space program, all this stuff is going on, this secret, top secret space program. How the heck do you prove it? Well, that, that's proving it's a big problem. Uh, but, I mean, we do know, for example, you know, that, NASA has been working with, you know, on radical spacecraft designs. We know that Area 51, even if you take aliens out of the equation, that at Area 51 there have been clearly some highly advanced prototype aircraft have been developed. We know that. Um, we could argue that at least some, I think, of the so-called Flying Triangle reports are evidence of, of highly advanced military test platforms, etc., so, you know, it's not that much of a leap to imagine if we're testing these things in our atmosphere that somebody else could be testing more advanced things outside of the atmosphere. And, of course, I think if anybody is engaging in, a, like, a, a hidden space program, it would have to be to investigate the things that they don't want us to know about because, you know, if nobody had a problem with it, it would all be in the public domain. So I, I suspect that if there is this sort of second tier of a space program... It's purely and simply designed to investigate certain issues like the face on Mars, the idea of ancient life on Mars, or even possibly still living life on Mars. You know, I don't actually rule that out. There have been some very weird photographs brought back from Mars that seem to show evidence of vegetation and water, etc., in certain locations. You know, maybe sort of the fact the the paradigm-challenging issues that these revelations would have that 
kind of inspires people to say, well, you know, we're going to do it undercover. We're not going to do it via the, the open space program, if you like. Well, that also uh, brings up the whole subject of the militarization of space. Uh, I remember the, the wonderful plot element in the, uh, the quite funny movie, Space Cowboys, where they, these retired astronauts are sent back up into space to fix an old computer system on a huge, massive you know, uh, nuclear device that has rockets pointed uh, at the Earth in some huge uh, orbiting space station. Where, where does NASA's involvement publicly end and and then where does that that link to the militarization of space uh uh sort of start do you, do you have you got any information on you know the percentage of of launches that are military and and secret and not divulged publicly what what, what is nasa just a public relations uh, agency now for the militarization of space do you think well, that's actually a very good question. I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, NASA legitimately launches satellites and space probes, you know, in, into space that will are designed to, you know, fly to different planets in our solar system, Saturn, Venus, wherever, to, you know, to try and determine what we can learn from these planets, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also the fact that a highly significant number of particularly the space shuttle launches are actually designed to place military satellites into Earth orbit. And most of these are like spy satellites actually launched on behalf of people like the National Security Agency, the National Reconnaissance Office, and the CIA. You know, they put in satellites into orbit that will be able to sort of spy on, the, on Russia, on China, on Iran, on Iraq, etc. Um, and this happens all the time. And, you know, this is where you have the public face of NASA involved in scientific exploration versus the private face of NASA actually launching satellites on behalf of the Defense Department and the intelligence community. And, you know, the two issues, ironically, on the one hand, are inextricably linked because it's often the same vehicles launching them, the space shuttles, and the same crews. You know, you often get certain astronauts going up time and time again. And yet the whole modus operandi, if you like, is totally different. On the one hand, it's scientific exploration. On the other hand, it's defense and intelligence-related issues. And I think this is an important issue to remember when it comes to government secrecy. We'll get into more of that in a moment. We have Nicholas Redfern, author of the NASA Conspiracies. Chris O'Brien's the co-host. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in The Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. We are in the final hour of the Paracast. I'm Gene Steinberg. Chris O'Brien's the co-host. Nick Redfern is the guest talking about the book, The NASA Conspiracies. We've been involved in listener questions and lots more. Chris, any more questions or follow-ups? Well, we, we have a question that uh, is, is more about Nick's work here. And, uh, and basically, it's, it's one of our, our longtime posters. Uh, and he, he says, how does it feel to be on a roll? Between this book and the last one, it seems like his work is generating some serious discussion and good vibes. It's a far cry from the reaction to body snatchers. 
does do you feel that these books may become more of a legacy than the cryptozoological books that you've written? And you've written quite a, a number of good ones. And and do you feel yeah, that I mean, they're more important? Well, I mean, I appreciate the comments you know that the the person said. I mean, to be honest, I don't that often get into the deeper issue of what this book or that book's going to mean to people. I mean, I write about things. You know, I mean, I'm not that. I've said this because I'm not that deep a person. You know, I, I write about the things I find interesting. And more importantly, because one thing I hate more than any other is when I pick a book up and it just goes over old ground. Right. Which is why I always try and, you know, even if I'm dealing with subjects that have been dealt with before, I always try and bring new information to the table. Like, for example, in this book, about the face of Mars, for example, you know, one of the people I interviewed was the late Matt Tonis. Um, who gave me a lot of information, you know, about the whole, uh, his theories on the face on Mars and what he felt it was and possibly still is and how, how it came into being, etc. And I think when you're looking at things like that, then if you can bring new information to the table, that's the most important thing. And that, that's what I try to do. Now, when you're looking at things like, um, you know, do I feel this book's going to be more readily accepted than body snatchers, I don't, I don't worry about that, you know. I put body snatches out because this is the story I was told and it presents a new spin on Roswell and I felt it was an important um, story that, that people should be told about, you know. I mean, I think in terms of people who look at things conventionally, if you can call it conventionally, you know, that aliens are visiting the Earth and the government's hiding the information, yes, this book will probably be more popular, but do I feel that that's the most important issue why I write this book or that book? No, you know, I put out information that I hope will kind of add to what we know or what we think we know, you know, about the various phenomena we're investigating. You know, I, I don't have, a, I wouldn't want people to have sort of a cynical approach of, oh, this is going to sell more than that because it's saying what people want to hear. No, I, I would never do that. I'd rather walk away from the subject than do that. There's probably also, I should be fair to add this, that I don't think there's enough money in any UFO or space conspiracy no. book to make it make sense to just grab it for a project. Nick can make a lot more money from doing mainstream stuff. No, that, that's actually a very good point. You know, sort of alluded to before, you know, I'm certainly not driving around in a, you know, <laughs> a Corvette. I'm actually driving around in a seven-year-old Ford Taurus. Which is actually, I won't say it's seen better days, but it's you know it's uh, it's 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 a seven-year-old Ford Taurus. You know, I think it's one of these situations where you're quite right that that it doesn't matter what you know to take the cynical approach. If you're writing books about UFOs, you're probably going to sell X thousand of copies. You know, three, four, five thousand copies. Who knows what? But you know, my my approach has always been, whatever I write about, I want to try and bring something new. And often, you know, that, that bringing something new doesn't always bring what people want to hear. You know, if I wanted to sell 50,000 copies of a book, I would never have written Body Snatchers, uh, which, you know, tells a story of a, a very alternative down-to-earth theory, although a dark theory for Roswell. Um, if I wanted to, you know, sort of have a good position within the UFO community, I wouldn't have written that. But I, I don't care about having a good position in the UFO community. I care about telling a story that potentially I feel is important, you know. If I if I worry about what people thought about me and whether I was saying the right thing, I'd never do anything. You know, I, I do what I feel is important <laughs> to do. And 
Yeah, you wouldn't write a book about the trickster. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I would, but the trickster, you know, it's, I mean, joking aside, people like yourself, you know, have done so much good research. It's like, why would I go blundering into that? But if I found, you know, sort of a new angle on the Kexberg story that nobody had mentioned before, then I would think, wow, you know, I'll do a book on this. But, you know, it's like, why go blundering into certain areas that I, you know, there are other people such as yourself, like the trick strangle, know far more about. I, I would sooner, you know, go with areas I feel comfortable writing about, but where I can add something new to it. And, you know, the whole, like, you, you know, you just pointed out, um, the, the whole idea of, of selling books is really irrelevant when the market for UFO books is set fairly small anyway. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not a relevant issue to me. Okay, one of the areas that you do talk about that has been covered somewhat, I think, uh, over the years in various books, not as in-depth, I think, as it deserves, but one of the things that's always intrigued me, and I'm sure others uh, out there in the listening audience, is some of these really uh, amazing, you know, like the STS-80 footage, uh, some of these object sightings that uh, have been reported over the years by astronauts, um, you know, Santa Claus is real. Uh, what, what was the, the famous uh, uh, quote from the from the Apollo astronauts? You have a very intriguing chapter that talks about Gordon Cooper and, and Jim McDermott and McDivitt rather, and, and some of the astronaut sightings. Do you want to just kind of briefly uh, go over some of those? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, this is one of the I think one of the most important issues. You know, when you talk about Talk, okay, talk about conspiracy theories, cover-ups, and government documents. But when you actually get NASA astronauts talking on the record um, about you know their own personal experiences of UFOs or knowledge of UFOs, then that sort of takes things to a whole different level. I mean, one of them, you know, one of the most important characters was Gordon Cooper, one of the original Gemini um, astronauts. Now. Um, you know, he was someone who, you know, was very vocal, even to the United Nations, by presenting statements to the United Nations that, yes, UFOs were real. And the one of the reasons he believed this was because, rather ironically, before he became a NASA astronaut in the early 50s, when he was with the U.S. military and taking part in missions over Europe, you know, to sort of see what the Russians were doing, he had a, a UFO experience of his own seeing these saucer light objects flying high in the sky that the military actually said were seed pods, you know, <laughs> which is, you know, like the most bizarre... That one always blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I, ironically, it almost sounds like something about the invasion of the body snatchers, you know, like pods in the sky or whatever. But uh, I don't think that was what the military were trying to, uh, you know, instill, but it was just trying to find out... Um, or trying to present a down-to-earth theory. But it was because of this and then other experiences where, you know, he'd seen film footage of UFOs out at Edwards Air Force Base landing and taking off that inspired Cooper to, you know, really get behind the idea that there was a genuine UFO phenomenon. And also um, Edgar Mitchell, who, you know, commanded the one of the Apollo moon missions that landed on the moon in 71, you know, uh, Mitchell has actually gone on record as stating that not only does he believe UFOs are real, but he was actually got information from in, inside the sources very recently that, yes, Roswell was real and he bald aliens. Now, you know, if this was something, anything to do with other than UFOs, the mainstream media would be, you know, doing all it could to get to the bottom of this story. 
but it's almost as if when it comes to UFOs, even if it's coming from like a NASA astronaut, that it's like, and finally, you know, to, to lighten the day, here's what astronaut so-and-so has to say about aliens. It's like, you know, maybe you know, the thing is also, Nick, is that, okay, these guys are getting on in years. And you say, ah, oh, well, you know, he was an astronaut 40 years ago. He's getting on in years. He's a little bit light in the head. So he believes in UFOs. Ha, ha, ho, ho. That's an excuse. Obviously not an excuse we'd want to regard as valid, but maybe we can see why that's happening. The book is called The NASA Conspiracies. The author is called Nick Redfern, and we can go into why in a long time passing, but that's another story. We also have Chris O'Brien, the co-host. You can write us, news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com. I'm Gene Steinberg, and why I was called Gene Steinberg is another story that also is not germane to this situation. You're in The Paracast! Jacques Vallée, Bud Hopkins, Brad Steiger, Nick Redfern, Lauren Coleman. You'll find classic and new books by these and many other authors at Anomalous Books, the number one publisher of 14 books on the planet. They specialize in books on UFOs and aliens, Bigfoot and cryptozoology, parapsychology and the paranormal, as well as alternative history, all of which makes Anomalous Books simply phenomenal. Check out their catalog at AnomalousBooks.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-I-S-T Books.com. For 58 years, Fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. When making important financial decisions, you should always know the facts. That's why Midas Resources is willing to pay you to read the facts. Midas Resources, a team of hand-picked financial specialists with decades of financial experience who are ready to provide you with state-of-the-art, up-to-date financial services. Midas Resources offers a host of services and stands behind their products. In fact, if you call and order their free Midas report, Midas Resources will pay you. This detailed report will provide you with financial history on the safest and most profitable areas to invest in. If you read the report, Midas Resources will send you a free Walking Liberty Silver Half Dollar. So what are you waiting for? Get the facts and call Midas Resources toll-free at 888-292-2709. That's 888-292-2709. And remember, if you read the Midas report, you'll receive a free Walking Liberty Silver Half Dollar. We all know that Berkey Water Purification Systems are the most trusted name in water filtration. As an authorized Berkey dealer for over five years and serving thousands of satisfied customers, the Berkey guy offers amazing specials for Berkey Water Filtration Systems. The Berkey Light Systems include a set of self-sterilizing and recleanable black purification elements that purify water by removing chlorine, pathogenic bacteria, cysts and parasites to non-detectable levels and remove harmful chemicals such as herbicides and pesticides. Order the Berkey Light System today, complete with 
with two black Berkey elements for only $209, and the Berkey guy will include three sport Berkey water bottles and ship everything to you free of charge. That's right, three sport Berkey water bottles and free shipping. An $87 value, yours free. Call the Berkey guy at 1-877-886-3653. That's 1-877-886-3653. Or order online at goberkey.com. That's goberkey.com today. I'm concerned about food for my family in the event of an emergency, and I know you are too. Are you ready? Don't wait for an emergency to happen. Put a plan together now with quality dehydrated food from Ready Reserve Foods. For nearly 40 years, Ready Reserve Foods has been in continuous operation canning the finest in dehydrated foods. Other companies just broker canned foods. Ready Reserve is the manufacturer controlling quality from start to finish with double enameled cans and nitrogen packing for maximum shelf life. Ready Reserve offers a balanced selection of fruits, vegetables, dairy products, proteins, and grains. Choose from a variety of pre-selected units or order by individual can to customize your own plan. When you purchase from Ready Reserve Foods, you are buying factory direct at wholesale prices. Call today for a free catalog, 1-800-453-2202, or visit readyreservefoods.com. Call 1-800-453-2202. Ready Reserve Foods. Factory direct. Wholesale pricing. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Get in on all the action at forum.theparacast.com. We have Nick Redfern joining us on the Paracast to talk about the NASA conspiracies, his latest book. Chris O'Brien's the co-host. And we've been looking at, obviously, the situation involving NASA people, astronauts all saying there's something to the UFO mystery. But the question, I guess, is always raised here, is it because they simply look at the evidence and believe in UFOs, or in one case here, maybe they have access to something, or are they trying to tell us something a lot more? Well, you know, I mean, it's one of these things where you can always look at it two ways. I mean, for example, I point out in the final chapter of the book, when you come to the issue of are they, are they trying to tell us something more, you know, I point out this relationship that's sort of developing and growing between NASA and the Vatican. Now, a lot of people don't realize, and a lot of people do, that the Vatican has a very deep interest in astronomy, outer space, and non-human life. Um, they have an observatory oh, just up the road from me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the Vatican has been very vocal about the idea that it's okay for the, you know, the Catholic Church and its followers to believe in aliens and it doesn't take away from their belief systems or, you know, um, long-term beliefs, etc. And the fact that, you know, this is in tandem with NASA has led a lot of people quite legitimately to wonder if this is part of some sort of slow drip feed process to acclimatize us to the idea that not only is it okay to believe in aliens in a theoretical sense but also that they they really do exist and they are actually coming here so you know i think we can look at it from the idea that yes aliens are here and they're visiting and there's this indoctrination process in some terms which kind of sounds like a sinister term and it may well be or you know maybe they're just 
they realize there's a phenomenon, but they don't have all the answers. I think I also I think it could be somewhere between the two. I think there's often a tendency to think if governments investigate UFOs and they hide information, that's because they have all the answers. It may be they don't have all the answers, but rather they know something's going on, but they're not entirely sure how to deal with it, what it means, or what the implications and the agenda are behind the whole UFO phenomenon. And I think those are all important issues that we should we should bear in mind. And um, Also, the matter of fact here, Nick, it would cause panic, wouldn't it, on the part of some people if governments say, hey, we don't know what's in our skies. Yeah, I think that's the important thing. If the government was to simply say, okay, back in the 40s and 50s, we were visited and these things, they did abduct a few people and it was kind of sinister. We didn't want to tell you back then that they've either gone away or they're not doing this anymore. There might be a, you know, that would be cause concern, but it wouldn't be overwhelming concern, I don't think. But a statement to the effect that something's interacting with us, but number one, we don't know what it is. Number two, we don't know where it's from. And number three, we don't really know what it's doing here and whether it's friendly or hostile or somewhere in between or ambivalent or whatever, and we're not able to stop it from happening, I think that issue would be of concern. And it's kind of like, you know, it's like in England, we have this phrase that, you know, you can't be a little bit pregnant. It's kind of like, with respect to UFOs, you, you cannot tell part of the story. If Obama or whoever, God forbid, Sarah Palin, had to say that UFOs existed, well, you know, it's like... That won't be enough. That, it will not satisfy anyone enough to say that UFOs exist. Questions will be asked, well, what about abductions? What about cattle mutilations? What about this? What about that? And the floodgates will be opened. And I think, I think that's the big concern. I actually don't think it's so much the concern. It's the fact that alien may exist that is the overriding well, well, uh, reason for the secrecy. It's the knock-on effect and the additional questions that will inevitably be provoked by such a, a revelation that concerns the government and NASA. Yeah, that's a, a really good point. Um, it, just kind of going back to the Vatican uh, involvement in space and interest in space, perhaps part of the uh, the slow drip process is is uh, naming uh, the Pope, Pope Benedict, uh, and, and putting in a guy that looks like an alien. <laughs> He's one of the most <laughs> demonic-looking people I've ever seen a photograph of. Uh, and I guess if people don't recoil to him, perhaps there's hope for some sort of <laughs> disclosure at some point. I'm well, sorry, I just know, couldn't I mean, resist. <laughs> no, I mean, I understand what you say. I think the important thing to remember as well is that, you know, if the Vatican saying something, either the Vatican knows, well, that's going to be intriguing itself, but what if the Vatican is only going on what it's been told by NASA and other agencies and... And the Vatican is deceived as much as we are. You know, I mean, I, I point out in the book, I have chapters in the book that look at issues that concern UFOs and the theory as to what lies behind the UFO phenomenon, but they have nothing to do with aliens. You know, there's, as you probably remember, there's one chapter in the book that sort of focuses very much in a similar pathways to those covered by Matt Tonis in his Crypto Terrestrials book. I have a chapter in there about a NASA contractor guy who had a classic contactee experience in 1973. He had this encounter like a long-haired alien out in the desert and was briefed by NASA and was told, you know, these aren't aliens. They're, they're a deceptive ancient human race and we should not trust them and keep yourself as far away from them as possible. You know, it's like if the Vatican comes out with something, 
can we even trust it? Not because we may not be able to trust the Vatican, but we may not be able to trust what the Vatican was told itself. Hey, Chris, any more questions left? The chapter in there on the uh, involvement of NASA and the abduction phenomena is, is <laughs> I think, has some really interesting, uh, raises some interesting questions. Uh, do you want to address that a little bit? You, you mentioned the, the contactee being contacted by NASA about his experience. How about the abduction phenomenon? This is an, another one that's sort of a little-known area. You know, it's, again, as I mentioned earlier, that we know that, that NASA obviously keeps a close track on what's going on in outer space. But the idea that it, it's actually watching also what's going on on the Earth with respect, you know, literally on the Earth itself with respect to, to UFOs is sort of a surprising issue. Now, I interviewed a woman from the book named Sharon who actually still works in a secretarial position at NASA's Kennedy Space Center to this day. And that is, her, for people who are wondering, that is her first real name. So it might not actually be that difficult for NASA to know. There probably aren't that many Sharons working at the NASA Kennedy Space Center. But she told me how she'd had these sort of classic alien abduction experiences, you know, the typical thing of being taken to craft, examined, probed, etc. Then you know, return to her bedroom and so forth. And But over time, particularly when she was living with her boyfriend, who was present when some of these experiences occurred, he said, you know, she never actually left bedroom. It was almost like it was an internal subjective experience in her mind. She happened to mention this to people at work at NASA and was then approached by a woman who worked for the agencies and agencies said, you know, can I speak to you about your experiences? And, you know, as I stress in the book, it wasn't like a man in black type experience where she was threatened and intimidated into silence. It was along the lines of, well, you know, we've heard about your story, very interesting. There are people in NASA that are intrigued by all this and concerned by it, and we'd just like to get your story on record. You know, it will add to the body of data we have. And the story that, that she was given by NASA was very, very kind of unsettling and actually sort of focuses on some of the stuff in my final events book, that these entities weren't extraterrestrial, they were like deceptive occult-based creatures that were, I guess, almost like feeding on the human life force, if you like, and that NASA was deeply concerned about, about this and was trying to get as much information on record as it could, and that they thanked her afterwards and said, well, don't say too much about it, but, you know, we appreciate you telling us. I appreciate you're telling us all this, Nick, because we have to take another break. Nick Redfern's the guest. The book is called The NASA Conspiracies. Chris O'Brien's our co-host. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in The Paracast. The Paracast. Is there a secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free, sent right to your mailbox. Plus, a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know.
Attention, an important product from HempUSA.org micro plant powder will change your life by removing all types of positive toxins, such as heavy metals, parasites, bacteria, viruses, and fungus from the digestive tract and stomach wall so you can absorb nutrients. Micro plant powder is 89% silica and packed with a negative charge that attracts positive toxins from the blood, organs, spine, and brain. This product has the ability to rebuild cartilage and bone, which allows synovial fluid to return to the joints. Silica is a precursor to calcium, meaning the body turns silica into calcium and is great for the heart. There is no better time than now to have micro plant powder on your shelf or in your storage shelter. And with an unlimited shelf life, you can store it anywhere. Call 908-691-2608 or visit hempusa.org. It's a great way to change your life. So call 908-691-2608 or visit us at hempusa.org today. You know the Constitution like the back of your hand. You've read books, listened to podcasts, attended lectures, surfed websites, and watched videos. You've made liberty your life's goal. But something seems to be missing. Stickers from LibertyStickers.com Exercise your freedom of speech with the world's most dangerous bumper stickers. That's LibertyStickers.com But wait, there's more. You can buy Liberty Stickers wholesale. Get them for 99 cents each when you put 100 or more in your shopping cart in any combination. Sell them or give them away. They're great for gun shows, flea markets, fairs, outreach, and more. Earn extra money, promote freedom, and spread the word. Need custom stickers, labels, or decals for your organization or business? Liberty Stickers makes them. Go to libertystickers.com to order or call 877-873-9626. Libertystickers.com, the world's most dangerous stickers. Hello, at ofthefield.com, we strive to empower you with wild food preparedness. We get lots of amazing positive feedback, most of which we feature on ofthefield.com. Here's a small sample of all that people like you have to say about the wild food experience. It's inspiring for many who are affected by the recent downturn of the economy. I already knew a bit about foraging and edibles, but you take it to a whole new level. A thousand thanks to you for all that great knowledge. It was empowering. When I was in the Navy, I went through a couple of quick land survival classes. Thank you for being an inspiration and for all the work that you do. I really appreciate the depth and detail of the information. Thank you so much. Much love and respect to you from all of us here in the boonies thanks again knowledge is power and that power brings peace folks thanks for letting us help you get back to basics read all of the testimonials at of you can order online for you and your loved ones or call 1-888-51-EAT-FREE to share in the secret on air online and on demand we are the GCN Radio Network. This is the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Nick Redfern, author of the NASA Conspiracies, Chris O'Brien, the co-host. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast, and so the beings seem demonic. You have more to say on that before we get to the next question. Well, you know, I mean, my, my view on this whole thing, like, you know, when we did the interview with final events, is that I think whether they're extraterrestrial, interdimensional, crypto-terrestrial, demonic, time travelers, whatever, what this tells us is that there's a genuine UFO phenomenon that nobody really has a good handle 
on what lies at the heart of it beyond the fact that the phenomenon exists. And I, I think that's a critical issue to remember is that, you know, as I said, we think government agencies have all the answers and they're hiding the truth. I think they're hiding significant facts about the existence of a genuine UFO presence, but they may have no real idea of the specific origin of the phenomenon than we do. They may be grasping at straws and NASA's, or the, the view of certain people in NASA that it's an ancient terrestrial race like Mactonis talked about, or that it's demonic, just typifies the fact that everybody's thinking, what on earth's going on? You know, who are they? Now, so maybe if we ignore it, it they'll go away. <laughs> well, we can hope, but I somehow have, have doubts about that. <laughs> Okay, uh, Gene, I, I kind of finished up uh, you know, my list of questions and, and the ones on the forum. Where do you want to take it? I'm going to take it to the face on Mars. There you go. To the objects, the artifacts. And, of course, one of the guests we've never had on the show, and I'm not going to say whether he won't be on in the future. He hasn't been on yet. That was, of course, our friend Mr. Hoagland. Now, the first time we had Mac Tonys on the show, we weren't talking about crypto-terrestrials. We were talking about the mysteries on Mars. You do touch into some of these things like the face on Mars. Any providence to that in your research, Nick? Well, you know, I mean, the, the biggest problem we have in, with the face on Mars in, in terms of evaluating it is the fact that it's on Mars, you know, which is <laughs> millions of miles away. That, that's the biggest problem. We cannot go there, or at least most of us can't, even if clandestinely, who knows, maybe somebody has. But if they haven't, then... All we're forced to work with is photographic evidence and personal interpretations, theories, and ideas. And there's absolutely no doubt that the face on Mars looks intriguing. Now, NASA doesn't ignore the issue. If you ask NASA, they will quite openly answer questions. But their view is that it's kind of like people seeing faces in clouds. That's their view. You know, it's the idea that, well, people know what faces look like. So if you see one in a cloud and it looks like a face, we say, well, that looks like a face. And that's what they say with the face on Mars, that people are just, you know, putting random imagery together in a fashion where it's something that they can recognize. But when you look at the bigger picture and you see that very near in the region of Cydonia where the face on Mars can be found, you see what eerily look like ruined pyramid-type structures and the face on Mars looks very Sphinx-like, whereas the Sphinx in Egypt points outwards. You know, the face on Mars points upwards, however. But, you know, I think, there's, I think Mac Tony, so I interviewed extensively for the book on this particular chapter, made an extremely good case for the fact that the face is artificial, very, very ancient, probably built by, you know, some indigenous Martian species, long of, obviously before Mars's atmosphere, decayed and finally you know just was just destroyed you know so basically also, these are the deserts of barsoom as they said in the old yeah. edgar rice burroughs stories yeah exactly and mac did hypothesize on the idea that perhaps you know when the martian atmosphere began to fragment and disintegrate that possibly the last fragments of this society could have made their way here you know maybe ironically all our stories about gods coming to the earth could be the last vestiges of some survival mission from Mars to here, and that, ironically, we are actually the Martians, you know. That's what I keep trying to tell people. They say, well, you believe in aliens. I say, yeah, I, I believe in aliens. We're the aliens. Sure. Men are from Venus. Women are from Mars. Or is it the reverse? Men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. Yeah, we were probably seated here. Who knows? Yeah, okay. I mean, so, think... all right. So we have the face on Mars, that possibility. What about things going on perhaps on the moon? Strange things. 
Well, yeah, I mean, one of the more interesting stories was a former Air Force guy named Carl Wolf, who um, worked on a NASA program or was sort of contracted, if you like, in the mid-60s and said that he spoke with a, an airman at one particular uh, NASA contractor installation where supposedly NASA had photographed on the far side of the moon um, what looked like, you know, uh, almost like a base, like a, like a city on the far side of the moon, which is, you know, incredibly controversial. But Carl Wolfer stood by his story, you know, he has a very credible background, and said, you know, I spoke with this guy, and he, and he was sort of highly concerned about the fact that these structures are being photographed on the far side of the moon, which seemed to imply some sort of, as I said, a base or a city that clearly wasn't ours or the Russians back in the mid-1960s. And um, there have been things like obelisks, you know, having been photographed on the moon that look very, very weird and that don't seem to be natural rock formations. And, and again, things like this, it's when you see these odd formations, it's incredibly difficult to just write them off as anomalies of nature. They, you know, when, when we see so many of them, and it leads me to believe that, you know, we there's far more going on in outer space and in our immediate, you know, near Earth space as well, the Moon, Mars, wherever, that we just simply haven't begun to appreciate, or at least the general public and the media hasn't. Whether or not somebody in the intelligence community and NASA has, that's a an entirely different question, which I think is a valid question as well. Would it be a reason for NASA not to want to go back to the moon? Um, well, I mean, you know, one of the theories that's been put forward is that we were warned off, you know, and that's sort of, that's been mentioned in a number of books, but it's such a vague statement that you have to wonder how or why would we have been warned off. I think my personal view is that either we didn't go back and there was a catastrophic public relations blunder where NASA really should have capitalized with not just the public but the major and Congress to say, you know, really fund us well and we'll do fantastic things. It's either a catastrophic blunder where they didn't do that or there has really been some sort of secret in tandem space program running alongside the mainstream one that really has achieved fantastic results that we just don't know about. Or maybe it's a bit of the two. Maybe there was a huge blunder in public relations and it just NASA didn't capitalize on the moon landings. But at the same time, somebody else in conjunction with NASA and working with them, you know, really has developed technologies to go further than we really realize. So why spend billions of dollars on technology that is basically ancient? Why deal with well, ancient technology if there's new stuff out there to deal with? Well, I think part of the reason could be that the people who are working on what some of us might term ancient technologies may actually not know the other ones have that have this highly advanced technology. You know, it's the whole issue of content martialization. You know, the um, the idea that agency A doesn't know what agency B is doing. You know, the notion that just because somebody is still working with with rocket-based technology and fossil fuels, they may not be doing that as a cover. They may legitimately not realize that somebody else is working with truly groundbreaking technologies that make you know, their technology look like somebody whacking a rock against a, a stone to try and get a bit of fire going, you know, in a like a, a caveman-type <laughs> scenario. I, think, I don't think necessarily... NASA's current space, it is a secret space program. I don't necessarily think the current space program, the visible one, is a cover story. It may be the people that are working on the space shuttle programs, etc., just don't know 
that there's this far more advanced program in existence. Wouldn't they suspect? I mean, how do you keep that secret? I mean, you have to have private industry building the spaceships, and that's a big question, and maybe we have to explore that. How do you take a secret space program? I don't mean, you know, flying spy satellites and stuff like that. We know that's going on. I mean more advanced exploration with more advanced aircraft stuff that will really make your socks fly off, you know? We have Nick Redfern. He's author of... The NASA Conspiracies, where we explore the good, bad, and ugly of the various conspiracies. By the way, neighbors, check out our forums, forum.theparacast.com, forum.theparacast.com, where when we have advance warning, you can ask our questions. You can ask questions of our forthcoming guests. We have Chris O'Brien as the co-host. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. Hey, neighbors, we have one more thing to talk about, and that's more merchandise at the official Paracast store. We have hats, we have jackets, we even have a flip video camcorder customized with the Paracast logo at the official Paracast store. It's all now available at the official Paracast store, store store.theparacast.com. Before you throw away your used batteries, you need to listen to this. Now, going green can save money. Go green and save money by giving life to your used batteries by charging them with the Renaissance Charger. The Renaissance Charger uses a new revolutionary battery charging technology that effectively extends the life of new batteries and gives new life to used batteries. Invented by legendary audio genius John Bedini, this unique and patented charging system rejuvenates the electrochemical plate structure in the battery without additives, increasing capacity and maintaining cell integrity. Renaissance Charge offers a full line of products made in the USA for all types and sizes of batteries. Find out why our customers tell us the Renaissance Charger is the only battery charger they will ever use. Save your money. Save the environment. Visit us online at r-charge.com. That's r-charge.com. Or call us at 208-772-4514. That's 208-772-4514. Be a part of the revolution today. Hi, I'm Mark Craighead, founder of Crossbreed Holsters. I designed our top-selling holster, the Super Tuck Deluxe, to solve the problems of being poked, pinched, and gouged while carrying concealed. The Super Tuck Deluxe is the most comfortable, most concealable holster on the market today. We offer a two-week free trial and a lifetime warranty. Visit us at crossbreedholsters.com. Don't forget... 
crossbreedholsters.com. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. Have you ever wondered why banks, stockbrokers, investment advisors won't talk about gold IRAs? They've been available since 1986, yet the financial industry won't recognize the value of gold for your retirement. Gold has outperformed paper investments, yet no word about IRAs. If you would like to have gold for your retirement, call 800-686-2237. Don't get left behind by rising inflation and low returns. Call 800-686-2237. Secure your future and call 1-800-686-2237. Did you know that you can be tracked and traced when you're online? With identity theft and cybercrimes on the rise, your passwords, your identity, and even your physical location can be revealed to complete strangers. Would you like to surf the internet anonymously and not have to worry about these threats? Well, now you can by visiting patriotinternet.com. For about $2 per month, patriotinternet.com will conceal your IP address and your physical location, allowing you to browse the web, send emails, and instant message anonymously patriotinternet.com will bypass filters blocked sites and keyword blocking you can also bypass logging by your router and your isp with patriotinternet.com there is no software to install and uses 128-bit encryption for your protection when using wireless hotspots patriotinternet.com shields your information from identity thieves and is compatible with windows mac and linux Protect your identity and your freedom with anonymous Internet access from PatriotInternet.com. Visit PatriotInternet.com today. America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? Nick Redfern, speaking fast, Paracast. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Okay. There used to be a guy on TV, okay. by the way, I think he did commercials for Federal Express, yep. and he had to talk very fast. I think he later became a politician, but <laughs> that's another story and probably not true. Chris O'Brien's okay. a co-host. I'm Gene Steinberg. We're in the Paracast. So I guess we're talking about here the possibility of a top secret space program yeah. and about important. keeping all this a secret from even the public NASA. Yeah, I think the important thing to remember when it comes to whether or not NASA or any agency could hide all this from the general public is that if you go back to, for example, the moon landings in 69 to 72, you know, you had this huge Apollo spacecraft, which was, you know, the, the rocket was like the size of a skyscraper, and yet the actual craft that landed on the moon was just a very tip, you know, this, this tiny capsule with three astronauts crammed into it like sardines in a can, and the, and the lunar module. You know, the whole couple of hundred feet of the rest of it was just fuel, well, if today we've developed something that doesn't require this huge rocket for fuel, you could actually have something that's like the size of the moon lander, which is like 20 feet. And if that is the case, potentially we could be flying things to the moon or Mars 20, 30 feet in size that nobody would ever see taking off. You know, that's the whole thing with the Apollo missions. You couldn't hide them because the craft was such a huge, humongous thing, you know. And I think that's the important thing. We could be flying stuff from Area 51, a 50-foot diameter craft, hypothetically, using some highly advanced propulsion system that would be, you know, necessarily wouldn't need to have lights on it, wouldn't need to be illuminated. It would take off at night. No wonder we see it taking off, and it would just, you know, leave the atmosphere and head to point A, B, or C. And so it would be very easy to hide the fact. 
you know it's like no one could hide a space shuttle lift off because it's such a huge unwieldy gigantic machine not just the shuttle but the you know the the fuel tank and the the boosters and everything else and the you know the launch tower that it's attached to but if you've got something that's the size of like a Greyhound bus that could travel to Mars who's going to see it you know it actually wouldn't ironically be that difficult to hide all right, so maybe there could be a secret space program here. I think that's a genuinely in- interesting, intriguing scenario. I, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't fall down in a dead faint if it was one day proven to be real. But you know, with all these mysteries, how the heck do you prove any of it? Well, that, that's the big question. I mean, you know, it's like any aspect of the whole UFO phenomenon. It's clear from government records, witness testimony, military people coming forward now they're in their 60s, 70s or 80s that clearly something's going on. What we don't have, unfortunately, and and I'll be the first to admit it doesn't help my, my own case, but I will be honest enough to admit we don't have that definitive smoking gun that will prove this or that is going on. And that's what we're striving to find. Now... Whether there is a smoking gun or even just the government suspects that certain things are going on, I'm not sure. But clearly something is. You know, the the big question is how we access that so-called black box where the material might be hidden. You know, the ironic thing is that the one person who may have come closer than anybody else in recent years is Gary McKinnon. And as a result of his sort of penetration of trying to find the truth, he now faces extradition to the U.S. and 70 years in jail. You know, that's... That's the harsh reality of what happens when you try and access the black box that we cannot access publicly and legitimately. So basically, if you find out the truth, they'll come after you. What's happening with Gary McKinnon, by the way? They're still trying to extradite him, right? Yeah, he's still, the U.S. is still trying to extradite him because, you know, of the whole, not so much because of the UFO angle. I mean, they, they don't talk about that so much. It's more along the lines of, you know, he penetrated our computer systems. He, according to, you know, the military and NASA, he actually affected and adversely affected the computer systems to where some of them were rendered inoperable or at least, you know, unusable for a while. And the very fact of hacking and also he left a number of statements relative to, you know, things like conspiracy theories concerning 9-11 and war on terror that they came after him. I think, I think with, with McKinnon, you know, it, it's like, on the one hand, it would be ridiculous for somebody to think they could hack into the government's, you know, classified systems of any government and get away with it. And, of course, he didn't. But what I also think is that I actually don't believe that, that McKinnon's sentence, if he is sentenced, will reflect the nature of his crime. I think what will happen is that he, it's entirely possible he could have the entire book thrown at him and given the worst possible treatment as a means to say to everybody else, you know, you try something similar, you're going to get the same as McKinnon. So in other words, McKinnon's sentence may not reflect his crime. It may actually be reflects a way of warning everybody else, you do this, you're going to get 70 years or whatever. But, but equally, you know, if McKinnon is brought to the U.S. and to stand trial, it's entirely possible that an entire can of worms could be opened up because by McKinnon's own admission, a lot of people forget this, the only reason he hacked, what he actually did, he hacked the Johnson Space Center at Houston and he actually hacked one particular building. And the reason he did this was because a woman named Donna Hare, who worked uh, for a NASA contractor, said she had seen in this particular building in the Johnson Space Center evidence where somebody within NASA was literally 
like airbrushing photographs, NASA photographs before public release to airbrush out anomalies like UFOs. When McKinnon heard from Donna Hare's testimony that it was this particular branch of the agency in Houston, it was this particular building, he decided to hack that particular building. And I actually think there's a very good argument where if McKinnon is brought to the U.S., his lawyers could legitimately say, well, he only went looking because a NASA contractor actually spilled the beans on where to go looking. You know, it's like, where does the buck stop? Does it start with NASA? Does it start with a NASA whistleblower, Donna Hare, for saying this is where, the, where I saw evidence of airbrushing of NASA pictures? Or does it start with McKinnon? for following up on what somebody, you know, a government contractor, subcontractor said was going on. You know, you, it could open a thorny can of worms of a very intricate legal nature. Well, I don't know that it's going to get resolved anytime soon. Is there any new word on what the extradition hearing is all about, where oh, well, it stands? Yeah. Well, right now, it's still the case of where uh, McKinnon's lawyers are saying, you know, because he has Asperger's syndrome, psychological condition that he shouldn't be standing trial anyway it's not his fault that he went hacking it's a you know a side effect of his condition and the u.s is saying no you know this guy's gonna he's gonna come to trial and we're gonna prosecute the law now you know the one thing i would say is uh, what everybody does admit is that mckinnon's entire actions were undertaken from within the british isles from within you know a british computer system a british uh, internet server and yes, he hacked NASA, but you know it's like it's basically a case of well, McKinnon hacked NASA, so the Americans are going to say we're bringing him here, like it or not. You know, let's say for example, somebody in the U.S. today hacked a Chinese missile system, you know, on the, the, the Chinese military, and the Chinese said, well, we're going to bring this person to China for trial. There'll be outrage. Do you know what I mean? And it's the same thing. Everybody seems to agree in Britain, at least, that, that McKinnon, if he goes to trial should stand trial in England. His crime was committed in England. Everything he did was in England. You know, it's um, should he not stand trial in England? Um, so basically the question of jurisdiction here has it that if he basically did this through British computers, it happens there, he can't come here. But I guess this is something that could be dragging on for years, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's gone on now for several years. I mean, it's gone right to the equivalent of you know, the uh, the prime minister, you know, the equivalent of the U.S. president of, you know, along the lines of his lawyer saying, well, he has this Asperger's syndrome, you know, it's not his fault, and and uh, and then putting back the extradition even further and even further and getting um, statements from doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists saying, you know, this man is not fit to stand trial because he's not, you know, the... Of a regular mindset. You and hoping they'll just give it up after 10 years of this. I, I actually think that could be the case. And I think one of the reasons, one of the prime reasons that might happen could be because of the can of worms that could be opened if, if McKinnon not only goes to trial, but, you know, takes the stand. I'll you tell know, you what, so this is something that might even be worth a full show. Neighbors, you can find more of Nick's stuff at nickredfern.com. And, of course, with Chris O'Brien, you'll check out OurStrangePlanet.com because it is a strange planet. The book is called The NASA Conspiracies. The author is Nick Redfern. Chris O'Brien was my co-host. This is the Paracast. I'm Gene Steinberg. A special, special thank you for our friend Nick Redfern for joining us on this week's show. Well, thank Yo, you thanks, Nick. Hey, great show, man. Thank you. Cool. Thanks a lot. 
Sarcast is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.